before we get this episode started, we recorded it before uh, the news came out, or before it actually happened, the attack, hours before it happened, the attack on Petra Kvitova at her apartment in Prostyov in the Czech Republic, Courtney, and we wanted to make sure we didn't leave that untouched, because obviously it's a, a terrible and significant thing that happened uh, from a tennis perspective, obviously, and then also just from a, a human perspective as someone we know and, and like a lot as a person on tour as a colleague i remember i think you mentioned on the show you told the story about her saying it was a, a privilege <laughs> for you to get to talk to her but i mean it's it i guess your reaction when you first heard the news and i guess as we kept hearing the news because i think i underestimated when i first saw the tweets coming in from the czech republic just how bad this attack had been yeah, no, I mean, I was, uh, you know, it, it, the news started to come out uh, kind of right in the middle of the night, my time. And as we all know, I'm quite an, uh, a, a night owl. So. Oh, I was still up to. Yeah, I yeah. So because I think we had just recorded. Yeah, we finished recording this episode, which is why you can, <laughs> for those listening, <laughs> not to hear how coherent we are. We finished recording it at about 4 a.m. Yeah, something like and that. The, and I, at Eastern. And then the news of the first reports of it I saw came at like 6 a.m. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it was around 3 o'clock in the morning. And I started to see, you know, the news come out and immediately, you know, reached out to her her team and um, just kind of stayed up and waited um, and, and got the call back to confirm that, that it had happened. And so, I mean, I think at that point, um, in particular – having, you know, spoken to her agent and, you know, waiting to speak to her publicist. Um, you know, I think when I spoke to her agent, that's when I kind of realized this is bad. Um, I think, you know, you, you, a lot of times, you know, you kind of expect, you know, we've seen kind of big trap, like very dangerous things happen before. And a lot of times the reaction is always like, oh, I mean, they're fine. Don't worry about it. it you know, stuff got broken. They're fine. There's, you know, they're in the hospital, just totally, you know, it's, um, precautionary, you know, a lot of kind of like shrugging off of, of things. And that was absolutely not the the impression that I got um, from her agent, Marian uh, Ball, who works at uh, IMG. So that's when I kind of got the sense that it was it was quite serious. And then I was up throughout the night just trying to, to wait and, and see how things were going to go and, and turn out. But, um, you know, the first thought that, that just comes to mind is, yeah, this is this is a colleague, you know, this is a person that at least for me, I mean, more so than Ben, you know, I see, you know, all the time, weekly basis, um, you know, week in and week out of tournaments and uh, is genuinely, I mean, no, there is no shock that she's won, you know, the WTA Sportsmanship Award as many times as she has four straight years, five of the last six years, I believe. Um, she's well liked and she's just so unassuming. And um, and so it's just it, it was quite um, harrowing to just kind of as the details became to to emerge as to how what happened in her apartment um just to imagine you know your friend in that situation it's it's really it, it really does rock you oh yeah no i just and it, it really did get pretty bad as i think the first public reports of this or the first on the record stuff is from bbc just talking about the scenarios of it being you know a, a real struggle and a knife held against her throat and things like that and that's when i think people hopefully started to grasp the severity of it and that as much as the uh injury itself may prove to be devastating we can get to that it's just it's first and foremost she's lucky to be alive and has herself to thank i think for that for being able to fight free of this situation and happening in eight twenty in the morning which is such i just I, that's part of what gets me like i feel like she's probably just waking up yeah. you know it's it's not someone who's not a morning person um <laughs> myself and i don't know that petra is or not but it's just it's just a lot to be thrown at you know someone coming into your home at that time of day uh and and trying to trying to kill you or coming close to killing you it's, it's a lot to deal with so obviously we hope everything 
goes well for her that she recovers mentally and physically as much as possible. This injury sounds really bad, really bad. Yeah. And um, I think when I when I when the first reports came out about her, um, you know, not being able to put weight on it for three months, I saw a couple tweets like, "Well, maybe she'll be back for the clay season." <laughs> no, no. I mean, this I I would not be I would be surprised to see her back in twenty seventeen. And I'm not knowing anything. They said best case scenario is six months is what they said in their later, more full thing. But I would just be unbelievably patient and and realistic about it. I mean, having talked to a doctor who deals with these sort of things, um, who's a hand specialist, a hand surgery specialist in recovering, he says, you know, there can be injuries for people who are doing simple things like, you know, trying to take the pit out of an avocado or break up frozen hot dogs for the examples he used with a knife, the sort of accidents he sees. And they might have just one finger hurt and they can sometimes struggle to retain full, um, you know, reuse of that thing. Just her basic common everyday tasks as civilians with that kind of injury. And for her, the level she'll need to a function she needs to recover, having all five fingers get damaged, and being someone who needs to be an elite athlete with you know feel. Not that Petra's hitting a lot of drop shots, but you know with uh, touch and everything like that, it's it's going to be hard. It's going to be really hard and. I hope we see her back. I hope she's able to come back as much as she uh, has a desire to and wants to. I'm sure she does, um, but it's going to be tough. And I'm just I'm trying to balance the people being blasé about it with a dose of reality here because it could be, it could definitely be career-ending. It's where it's not unfair to use. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I know that that she's optimistic. That she's you know she's being you know, uh, very Petra about, about it all. And it's kind of like one of those, like, sew me up, get me out there, you know, sort of things. So hopefully, you know, they're able to, the doctors and everyone can kind of give her a good timeline and a solid timeline. And she's able to, to kind of um, stick with it, you know I mean? Because even, you know, obviously not the tragedy surrounding the injury, but the, like, you know, you look at somebody like Adele Potro who, you know, sure. had that wrist surgery. I mean, it, it's, it's seemingly small, these ideas of like, okay, you cut your fingers or you need some surgery on a tiny tendon in your wrist that sometimes, and most of the times, those are the most delicate um, kind of injuries to, to heal up mm -hmm. because um, the there's nerves, just a lot yeah. in nerves as well. And there's just a lot going on there. Um, so I certainly hope that, that, you know, I see her on court sooner rather than later. Um, but also hope that she takes all the time that she needs to, to get, get well. And, and she's going to be missed. I mean, this is a player who, I don't think I've ever hidden the fact that she's one of my favorite players to talk to and to interact with. And I was just going to, you know, one of the stories that kind of kept going through my mind, um, you know, over the last couple of days is, you know, going back a few months to when she won Wuhan. And it was a funny week for her. Obviously, she had played that incredible match um, against Kerber. She was yeah, running was on great. fumes. She was constantly, like, you know, losing her train of thought in press conferences because when Petra's tired, her English starts to go. And, mm -hmm. and she starts babbling a little bit. And she knows it. And she apologizes. She's like, I'm sorry. I'm so tired. Um, and, <laughs> you know, kind of that slumped uh, Petra at the dais look that Ben is well familiar with as well. Oh, yeah, she can look so sleepy. It's so great. sleepy. So sleepy. But, yeah. So but she gets through it all, right? And she she wins the tournament, plays incredible tennis after after beating Angie, um, goes and wins the tournament. We do kind of our rounds, right? It's it's a Chinese tournament, which means that there's a lot of dignitaries that need to be thanked and um, you know, sponsors that need to be satisfied after the win. So Petra's walking around, you know, in this gigantic white plain Nike t shirt, uh, mm -hmm. just going from point to point, shaking hands, doing everything she needs to do. She's talking to Czech press, she's signing rackets, whatever, doing all that. 
gets it all done. Great. We sit down for our champion's corner um, in an empty player's restaurant or player lounge. We we hammer that out. And as I turn around, I look at Petra and she's just sitting there with her physio, who was her coach that week, um, in this empty player lounge. And he had ran to the player dining. This tells you a little bit about the glamour life of a tournament champion. <laughs> he had run to player dining, which obviously was going to be closed because, you know, this is about three hours after match ball. Right. Um, and just grabbed boxes of whatever he could get. So they had he had a stack of boxes. One just looked like plain spaghetti, boiled spaghetti. One was like some plain rice. One was some steamed vegetables. But it was this hodgepodge of food in these to-go containers. Mm-hmm. And so I turn around and I just see Petra just like sit down next to her coach, you know, open it up, start eating. And I'm like, bye, see you in Beijing. She's like, bye. And yeah, it was just kind of like a weird moment. Anyways. So no, but it's true. But yeah. but so this isn't even the whole story. So then I'm like, oh, crap, I have to get to um, the airport to fly to Beijing that night. So I get all my stuff, hop in transport, get to the airport. Um, flight is delayed. I randomly sit next to or Sonia Mirza is also on my flight. Uh, so we both, you know, board the plane. We get into Beijing at about one o'clock in the morning. And um, meanwhile, Sonia was like super nice because my transport never showed up. So Sonia was like, hey, do you want I have two cars you can squeeze in? Like, oh, that's great. <laughs> I love so Sonia has I know. Cars. So and Sonia, meanwhile, had been dropping some incredible philosophical knowledge bombs on me the entire time. <laughs> that was like it was like a very that was a whole different story. But anyways, so we were riding back and I'm texting with um, another WTA communications rep, Jeff Watson, who was also in Wuhan. And he was texting with Petra. And he's like, oh, my gosh. I was like, what? He's like, Petra's transport didn't show up and she's in a taxi <laughs> in Beijing going to the going to the hotel. Now, if you've ever been to Beijing, it can be very confusing. Um, they don't speak a ton of English. Right. So I was just sitting there in the cab, like looking at Sonia and I'm like, or in our car. And I'm like, Petra's in a taxi cab. And Sonia's like, what? <laughs> so we get so it was to one the- of the two cars that came for for Sonia, really Petra's. No, they were both for Sonia. They just nobody showed up for Petra, I guess, oh. and nobody has showed up for me either. So it was like all it was. It was a one a.m. flight delayed, some miscommunication. Maybe they didn't have drivers. Right. So so we get to the hotel and it's just me and Sonia standing at the this enti- you know the empty hotel checking in. And obviously I'm like Sonia go first. So Sonia's checking in, and then I hear this banging, <laughs> and I turn my head to the right, and it's Petra with like. Both hands holding luggage and her Wilson bag, her big red Wilson racket bag on her back as she's trying to push through the, the doors of the hotel to get all of her stuff through. And, uh, and her physio has all the same stuff, too. And I'm looking like, first of all, you could have just used the revolving door, Petra. But, but she's trying to push through these doors and just, just making a huge racket. And like she like rolls up and she's like, oh, hello. And I'm like, hi. And I was like, you get here? Okay. She's like, yeah, no, it was fine. Okay, and then like and then you know like Sonia's done checking in and she's gonna go to the room and Petra's like no go ahead I was like Petra no check in to your room and go to sleep and she's like no 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 it's totally fine it's like it's it's good I'm like Petra go and she's like no 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 it's and literally I sat down on the floor <laughs> of the hotel I'm like go check in I I'm a night owl I don't need sleep she's like okay and like does it but I just it's a very visceral like memory of like just turning my head and seeing Petra Kvitova, Wuhan champion, um, who just got out of a taxi cab trying to bang her way into the hotel. Um, but that was Petra. Just like nonchalant, very humble, like, oh, there's no transport. She didn't throw a fit. She's like, okay, well, we need to go to the hotel. So let's go get a taxi, you know? And, you know, no, uh, nobody was there to help her put all her luggage onto a, a cart. No, you know, whatever to bring into the hotel. She just 
grabbed it all, walked in. I don't know. That doesn't make that that may not sound special to anybody else, but but um, but it is. It's not. It's not common. <laughs> no, she's the anti diva, especially from a two time Slam champ and Misery category player that she could rightly consider herself in. You know, it's uh, yeah. She's very unassuming. I remember you were. I think you said and you tweeted sort of anecdote about her how she when she first after she first won Wimbledon <laughs> she would just sort of routinely ignore autograph seekers not out of like malice or you know you know uppityness or whatever just because she really didn't think they wanted her autograph she was yeah. like confused why I don't want to be interested she's like they're there for me what no surely they're no. calling for Petra Sitkovska they'd rather right? have her autograph than mine like yeah I mean that was you know Petra just never really understood like why people were asking questions after she won Wimbledon about her family about full neck about her personal life all these sorts of things she just was like why do people care like it just it just never really occurred to her and it's been amazing watching her kind of like grow into it all you yeah. know uh, to go from that you know kind of you know, in that Wimbledon champion to who she is, you know, the, the woman that she is now. But, um, yeah, it just, it just really, really sucks. It's just a yeah. big sucker punch. Um, yeah, and she, and she, and she has a great team around her and obviously our yeah. thoughts are with them as well. Cause this can't be easy for anybody who knows and cares about Petra, um, to see her go through this and be pulling for her through all the uncertainty of this moment. So we're hoping for all the best. We talk about her in, uh, this first question, this is a question show. So we talk about her in the first question, um, this was again recorded before the attack, so it might seem like you know we're being flip. We're not might, we being know. flip, or, or, or we were being, uh, or we just seem you know head in the clouds. So we wanted to give full context for this, and the rest of the episode was all recorded before that. And uh, Poge Petra, is that how you pronounce? It? I'm never good with the Czech pronunciation. Poge, yeah, yeah whatever Poj. she she usually you know shouts it in a tone that I'm not going to try to emulate. <laughs> um, but all the best, Petra. We're all pulling for you, and we hope to see you back at healthy and happy as soon as this world lets you be so all the best and without further ado here is the rest of the show Welcome to episode 174 of No Challenges Remaining. I'm Ben Rothenberg, joined by my dear friend, Courtney Nguyen. Hi, Courtney. How are you? I'm good. And how are you, Ben? I'm super. We're in the lead up to Christmas. How are your preps and such going? Are you feeling, uh, you know, yuletidey and, and <laughs> jolly or, or scroogey or somewhere uh, in between? There's got to be something in between there, I think. Yeah. Um, I'm a little bit tired during this month for a variety of 2016 related reasons, so it's hard to like amp up for 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 the holidays. That being said, very excited to have my family in town visiting from Tokyo, and I apologize in advance if I seem a little bit more bedroom voicey than usual, but my office is actually right next to our guest room, which is where my two-year-old niece is currently sleeping, so I'm going to try my best not to wake her up. Um, but uh, but yeah, no, so, you know, looking forward to Christmas, but it's, it is weird to think that in less than 10 days, I will be on a plane to Australia. I know. We're going to see each other in, at the yeah. San Francisco airport, <laughs> in theory, on our way down. So that'll be exciting. And then, yes, we will be heading to our various down under destinations and everything is starting really soon. Like, I feel like it comes really, it's it's really soon. It's, it's really soon. soon. It's like pretty soon, like within what, like nine days, like the 
uh, live score app will like wake back up and have yeah. like a line that says Auckland on it. You'd be like, oh God, really? Yeah, it's it's that stage of 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 the off season where you do have to actually maybe pull out your suitcase and like think about doing laundry mm-hmm. and like repacking something that hasn't had to have been packed for at least for me a month and a half. And I know for Ben quite well about the same as well because he went to, to Korea. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, it's a, uh, it's a weird dusting off time, I suppose. It is all, but it is coming up very soon. And with that, we have lots of NCR things to get to uh, in the, in this waning days of 2016, uh, working on some longer term project episodes that might involve, song contests and things like that but also we have lots more questions like last time uh from our kickstarter backers who got those and obviously we we haven't gotten all of them if they come in after 2016 we'll still get to them from you guys but here is another batch of them after last week's batch number one so courtney are you ready to dig on into these bad boys and girls and also well-behaved people yeah for our kickstarter backers who have been incredibly patient and have some great questions i'm happy to dive into the mailbag all right, let's go. Um, in no particular order, let's start with Corey Elliston, who asks, uh, I love your podcast and just want to give my Kickstarter question, which is, what is your view on Nick Kyrgios? Do you think he will fulfill his potential and win Grand Slams, if you think that is his potential? Uh, do you believe that he needs a coach, or is it not essential for him? And do you think that his supposed indifference on the court is just a coping mechanism because he cares so much? Uh, surely the training he put in as a kid would negate the idea that he doesn't care. Can't wait to hear your answer. Courtney, we talk about Kyrgios a lot on the show. Obviously, everyone talks about Kyrgios and Tennis. It's kind of, you know, he is the most talked about person on tour. He had his own segment in the Tennis Channel Year in Review show that I was watching on TV the other day, which was fun. Um, but yeah, he's, uh, I guess, let's just put it in a blunt nutshell to start. Do you think Kyrgios will fulfill his potential? Like, yes or no? Ooh. Buy or sell on Kyrgios as... Slam winner. And I, if you play oh. his potential, which I agree it is his potential. He certainly has that potential, I think. No, for sure. I mean, I, I think that it's it's kind of a weird loaded question because it before you answer it, you have to dive into what you think is Kyrgios's potential. And I think that, to be quite honest, I think that one slam is not his potential. It's multiple Grand Slam winner. I think he's up there. I think his natural ability is off the charts. And it was interesting because I was having a conversation um, with an agent the other day. And I was kind of saying, and it just kind of dawned on me. And I was like, you know, in a lot of ways, I kind of feel like Kyrgios and Petra Kvitova are similar insofar as obviously very different personalities and and very different ways in which they go about their business. But I think that their natural talent is so high and so obvious that in order to um, kind of release it, the most important things are that they're happy and healthy. It's not about the amount of drilling and it's not about the amount of you know, tennis IQ that needs to be improved or all these sorts of things. I think their general tennis instincts are so pure and so clean. Their ball striking, what they can do on the court when they just play with zero inhibition um, is is just off the charts and in a way that I would, you know, I'd put them in a different league. But to let that out, they have to be healthy and they have to be happy. And how they pursue that in their different respective careers and respective lives is, is going to be a very different thing. And you've seen it with Kavitova, you know, this year practicing less, you know, all these sorts of things and really trying to figure out 
what keeps her motivated on court and what keeps her happy on court. And with Kyrgios, you know, he says that the work that he's been doing with the sports psychologist has actually been paying off. Um, maybe for him, it is a similar thing of like a limited schedule that he's not going to play a ton or practice a ton. And he's going to have to be given the freedom to uh, pursue his little whims and, uh, you know, kind of immature pursuits that, that just keep him yeah. happy. The, and the if playing he Pokemon does... with 12 year olds, yeah. we talk about in the New York Times article. Exactly. Article. Yeah. And if he does that, maybe that's when he plays his best tennis. So, you know, I think that Nick will win a slam. I don't know whether or not he will fulfill his potential. And that's not to say it's because of Nick, it, it, you know, failing in any way, but not unlike a Kvitova, it's because I just think that they're that good, that they can they can do a lot. And I just don't know if they're going to do what I genuinely think they're capable of. I don't know if I would put Nick completely in the same league in pure talent as Kvitova. Oh, I wouldn't. Tour yet. I mean, no, I, think not peak, I, th- I think, well, I think peak Petra, I don't think it's that far off though, because I don't, th- I think peak Petra can beat anybody. And now that she finally beat Serena, um, or fi- finally, quote-unquote, in Madrid last year, um, she has wins over everybody and should be able to uh, beat everybody on her best days. Nick still has not beaten, hasn't played Djokovic ever, and Murray, has, he's played a couple times at slams and gotten relatively comprehensively beaten. Uh, so he has growth to do, and, and those guys, like we said, won't always be there in quite the same form they are now. Um, so the bar for what it takes to win a slam will get lower. So I do think that Nick... Even if Nick stays in his current state of being a mercurial, you know, ten to fifteen player, and he'll and he'll sort of move up in the rankings just out of the tour aging, I would think he'll get into top ten pretty soon without vast improvement. But I think that it's going to be good enough as it is now. It, it would need to be a further decline, a further precipitous, you know, sort of event and some sort of uh, regression or derailment, whatever you want to call it, that gets him off this track i think he's as of now even with his you know two steps forward one step back progress he's still i think on pace to do it to win a slam and his potential is a trickier question i agree with you that he absolutely has the game to win a a few slams i don't know how many once you get beyond more than two i mean that's sort of all it's hard to start talking about real numbers there when they still have zero but he's absolutely a great grass court player he should be able to win wimbledon he is someone who feeds off crowd energy and should be able to contend in Australia. Uh, he's US not a Open. bad U.S. Open should be great for him if he ever gets his head together there. Uh, and he's not awful on clay, uh, so he's done well in Madrid at least, which is obviously different clay. And he made the final in Portugal at 250 once, so he's, you know, some clay decency there. And he should be, yeah, totally contending and in it. But it's all going to be maybe more of a model in terms of just how the results look. Maybe not quite that here and gone completely because the other thing unlike petra one of the underwritten things about nick i think is that he really doesn't take many bad losses he does as much as he's like up and down he really doesn't lose to people he's not supposed to the only one i can ever think of off the top with the exception of the zvera of tank where he got misha zvera of tank where he got right uh suspended for that is when he um when he lost to shapalovov in canada this year and that was like the first time I were like thinking like, wow, Nick was like an upset victim because usually he might sort of lollygag, but he's very good at taking care of business when he is in a tournament, more or less. Um, so I think that that serves him well. Uh, he's He's got a lot of potential. He's got a lot of aura. And I think people will be intimidated by him. Yeah, he's a, as he gets better, especially with all the sort of uh, X factors and 
outside static he brings to a match i think people will find it sort of an exhausting preposition <laughs> playing him or preparing for him and he can be a, a draining guy to play even if it's not grueling baseline rallies or anything like that it's just a lot of mental energy it takes to get on his level if you feel like you have to do that when you play him so yeah i think that i think that he's trending in the right direction i think that a coach couldn't hurt or somebody who's been there who he sort of buys into who can tell him you know nick you have to practice this week or something yeah. <laughs> or something you know just like to keep him from really getting into deleterious behaviors whatever way it can be and if he doesn't you know whatever form that takes that can't hurt i don't know if he needs it but it certainly can't hurt being out i think he might now he maybe he doesn't need it maybe i am talking about him in terms of this progress getting some sort of assuming he'll get some guidance at some point because i don't think you can be that young and that inexperienced on tour without a coach and have it be okay for your long-term yeah i mean i think he needs it because he does need to learn discipline yeah. Um, not just, I mean, I don't mean that with respect to like his off court nature or what he does on his personal time, whatever that's up to him, but with respect to his tennis, he needs to learn discipline there. There's still some, you know, poor decision-making that happens on court when he goes for too much too early when the shot's not there and he needs to realize that it's not there. I think the other thing too, with Nick that I've said many, many times, I think he can get a heck of a lot fitter than he is. I think that his body is, is prone a little bit more to breaking down. Like I said, I think that there's a lot of, you know, it doesn't seem like there would be similarities, but I think there are quite a few similarities between Kyrgios and, and Kvitova in terms of their models. No. The only difference is that like when Petra says some of the things that she has employed in her game, which is kind of like dialing things down a notch, it's endearing. But if Nick were to say it, I think he'd be castigated for it. Although Petra, Petra did get some, some flack from people for saying she wasn't going to practice, like, practice on off days. Of the year. Yeah, there were people on Twitter I saw who were like rolling their eyes. Uh, people on Twitter... Okay, whatever. I, I mean, mean, obviously, but, it's lower scale. P- yeah, you know what makes I mean? fewer headlines like, than Curios. Yeah, yes. on a broader on a broader scale. And at the end of the day, it, 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 it her approach paid off. You know, she started practicing a little bit less, and she didn't really have a coach, and all these sorts of things. And look how she finished her season. Um, it it all kind of worked out for her. So you know, different strokes for different folks. But but I do just think that I think that just their innate talent is so, it's just remarkable that they just have to figure out ways to unleash it. Um, refining it is a bonus, <laughs> but if they can just get out of their own way by being healthy and happy on court, um, I think that goes a long way, uh, especially with Kyrgios, to, to kind of fulfilling what, what I think that many of us think he can do. And like you alluded to, and as we've always said on this podcast, he is, he's Hollywood. He's blockbuster. People tune in. I know people roll their eyes at that idea, but, you know, if you don't listen to me, listen to the people who actually see where the money is coming into tennis, you know, right. and they will tell you we need Kyrgios. To put it a different way, Nick Kyrgios is the only player I can think of in upcoming generations that has any shot of getting into any sort of GQ most stylish bracket. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. And obviously his big shoes to fill there because it looks like Roger's going to win as of recording time. <laughs> what, what, a, what a big moment for tennis. Tennis is very alive and fashionable and stylish and just... Winning meaningless contests. I don't know. It's a nice off-season pick-me-up for the sport. I feel like. Sure, if you can get tennis on a on a in a meaningful discussion on a, you know, outside of the tennis realm, you know, thing, which is what the GQ most stylish would be considered. Mm-hmm. We'll take it, especially we'll during take, the off-season. We'll take anything. We are desperate and cheap. <laughs> um, <laughs> here's a sort of different question than what we usually do from Greg Reed, um, who asks. 
what was your thought on the doubles tour this season? On the men's side, I guess he's particularly asking. Uh, any surprises? And who do you think the contenders for next season will be? Any new faces or teams to contend for next season? Uh, he says, I especially like Melo Kubo and Pospisil Stepanek, but also Pavic, Peya, Venus, Michael Venus, Lynchstead, and Nestor, Roger Vasilan. Will Mah- Herber Mahus, Herber Mahu slump or continue dominance? Just thoughts on doubles in 2017. Uh, thanks a lot, he says. So... Courtney, obviously, full disclosure here, if people listen to the show, we do not cover that much men's doubles. Um, and I so confess that you, it you is obviously... the discipline that I watch the least. And, I'm, uh, you know, I was telling Ben before we hopped on the podcast, you know, obviously I watch men's tennis. I obviously I watch women's tennis. Obviously, I watch women's doubles. Uh, I love mixed doubles. I think that's great. I love team competitions, whether it's Davis Cup, Fed Cup or 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 Hopman Cup or whatever. I do not watch men's doubles unless there's like a, a star singles player involved. Um, so I don't watch a ton of it. Um, I used to watch maybe a little bit more, obviously, when I was, you know, writing for Sports Illustrated because I was charged to cover the full entirety of the sport, um, including the men. And at the time, Bob and, and Mike Bryan, obviously, were top of the charts. And so as an American publication, we covered them fairly extensively. But yeah, I mean, I'm familiar I'm not super deep familiar, so I just want to throw that out there. So if I say dumb things, please don't yell at me. It comes from a good place, but partially an ignorant place. <laughs> all that, all of that disclaimer, I think, applies to the whole show, but most particularly when we talk about <laughs> men's doubles. Um, I mean, the main thing I'll say, first of all, there's a bunch of new pairs. Like, he's getting to uh, Melo Kubo is a reshuffled pair after Melo Dodig is splitting up, and Pospisil and Sock are finally officially calling it quits, and Stepanek's pairing with him. Um, and so things like things shuffle around. So it's very tough to know what's going to happen with how much, uh, you know, dosi doing and partner exchange and Chinese fire drill, whatever you want to call it, that happens at the end of a season. So we don't know. Um, Australia has had a lot. There's been a lot of, and the other thing is there's been so much parody in men's doubles in the last, uh, two years that it's very tough to say anything confidently. Like once the, Maybe it's a preview of the singles in some way. Like once the Bryans became less surefire things, it became a free-for-all. Men's doubles and slams are going to everybody. There was like a streak of, I think, five or six slams that all had pairs winning it where neither player had ever won a slam before. And so that's obviously going to ebb a bit because you run out of bodies at some point who haven't won slams. But it's also just showing that these things are are chaotic and, and we won't know. And the Bryans are still around. Uh, they're not retiring. I thought they. I really thought they might this year. They've been talking yeah, we, about Rio. I mean, that's again one of time. the big one of the big storylines of 2016, which you alluded to, I think, in a couple of episodes ago. Uh, that a lot of the retirements we thought that were coming were not have not come. Literally, and none the of the Bryans. I really thought that that was going to be it for them, but I guess they're continuing to play. They are, and they are not young. The Bryans. The Bryans are 38. Both of them, same age, coincidentally. And uh, <laughs> funny how twins work. A little twin humor there for you. No, and, and so yeah, so they're they're staying in it. Obviously, they're older, but that's not a prohibitive thing in ten- in tennis for doubles, and that's one of the main trends in the sport. I mean, we have two younger players in the top ten now, in Airbear and Continent, who are both in their mid twenties, and that's like unheard of recently. It's all been the same names over and over and over again. Yeah, in the top ten, there's only three players that are not thirty years old. 
Yeah, so it's those two, and who's the other John one? Piers, who's 28. Piers, right, 28, okay. Um, and if you yeah. extend that out to top 15, they're also the only three players who are not 30 years old in the top 15. Jack Sock at number 16 is 24. Um, top 20... Pospisil is 20 at 26. Yeah, 20 at 26. So there's four players under the age of 30 in the top 20 of men's doubles. But if you, the career, the timeline is just so different. Like, even ones who seem like relatively newer breakthroughs quote-unquote, like, Trett Huey, who's still, like, establishing himself mm-hmm. and made London for the first time. I mean, he's 31, and he seems like a newbie in doubles. Yep. And so, um, yeah, it's just it's just how it goes, and it's an interesting sort of thing, and it it's good for them. I know it's a problem for the tour or a, an issue for the tour in terms of, like, player council-type discussions on how to make it easier for guys to break through because the draws are smaller in doubles, obviously, or in terms of pairs. They're the same number of people, but smaller number of, you know, team slots you know what i mean draws are smaller and there's it's hard for the cuts can also be very high doubles players play fuller schedules than singles players and so it can be very tough to be an up-and-coming doubles player you have to pay a lot of dues and win a lot at the challenger level and maybe 250s to start getting anywhere near a master's draw which is where the money and the points are and so that's i think there's a lot of structural reasons why we don't see uh, the upheaval and the sort of shocks that we see on the up and rising stars, whatever, that we see on the single side more often. I think there's a lot of uh, format differences that make that happen. I realize it's a very dull thing to talk about cuts and, you know, the schedule and sign-ins for things when you have to go on site sometimes to sign in for tournaments and not know if you're going to get in or not. So, I mean, doubles is, it's a whole different landscape out there. And again, I'm not pretending to know how all the ramifications work. Um, but it's, it's a, it's a mostly, uh, there are people who like it a lot. It clearly as Greg is one of them. I talked, I know when we had Ricky diamond as a guest host on the show, big Rick. In town, big Rick in, <laughs> what was that? It was in November, December, October. Anyway, whenever he was on, um, he is follows doubles more so he can be conversant in it. Um, but yeah, Courtney, like we were saying, it's, it's just a different sort of thing. And I think ATP, especially cause it's so much more double specialist heavy than WTA is. Yeah. It's a lot of players who, I mean, I can't tell you much about how Pavich and Pay are going to line up at all. Having seen them play maybe a couple times each, I don't know. It's just a different, it's just not what we mostly do. Yeah, and I, and I will also say, and I think this applies also to the women's doubles game, but it does definitely apply to the men's doubles game, which is that I just think doubles is a completely different sport. I mean, not sport, but it's very different from singles. Um just the strategy and how you gauge players and what their skill sets are. And I feel like in doubles, the skill sets and and what one player, why one player is a better doubles player than another player. It's a very, you have to be, you have to have a very trained, keen eye to be able to identify that. Like, usually, you know what I mean? Like it can't, but it can be obvious. I feel like, like Hingis Mirza, when they were peaking, it was very obvious what they were doing well. Well, that's like baseline power plus net finesse finishing right there. For they sure. were like a very and like she was a and Sonia is a forehand player, Hingis is a backhand player. Right. Like that's the, those sort of things line up. And there are sometimes in the men's game too where that works out. But the men's game is also so much about serve. But even like so but, small. but even if you were to look at I agree with that a hundred percent. But even if you look at like Hingis and, and Martina, so much of also at the same time when those two paired up, you're bringing with me as an analyst, I'm bringing to the table my knowledge of them as singles players as well. That's true. Right? So it's kind of a cheat sheet already. Whereas, like, if I were to jump into men's doubles cold, I would have to do a lot of scouting of a Mate Pavic. 
to know what his deal is in doubles. Or Fabrice Martin, I kept seeing his name oh, popping up as, a, as champion. No, he kept winning like all these doubles titles this year on the lower levels. And I was like, yeah. what is up with this guy? I don't know what his deal is. You know, and even once you start to get up, you know, to the top level, even like a John Pierce or a Jamie Murray, even Herbert and Mahu, the number ones, like I have watched them play a lot of doubles. I don't really, I can't, I confess, I would not be able to sit there and tell you what makes them good. I just know they're good. I mean, but I wouldn't be able to like talk about it in a meaningful way. Um, that's fair. I mean, I could talk a little bit more. I've, I've watched a few of their matches, fair. and I feel like I could break down. I mean, it's a little bit similar thing. It's a classic sort of thing where you know Mahu's a big server and Bear's a very good finesse guy and net stuff and things like that. Um, but it's it's you're right that it's, it's true on the men's side. There's just so many more double specialists in the mix. And the women's side, it's not the case. Um, I'm looking at the WTA doubles top 20, and I've seen all but two of them play singles at some point, which is Angel Chan. I've never seen play singles, although, I mean, I know Letitia well enough for singles, and there, there's a team they sort of make sense because they're sisters, and they make sense as a unit. They don't change partners, so they're a more easily quantifiable thing. And then this other woman I don't know much of, uh, Zhu Yifan, uh, uh, yes. Chinese, Chinese. Yeah, uh, she's she's twentieth, and I've never seen her play that I can remember. Yeah, she's. I yeah, mean, but, but, but she's like, yeah, fan is ranked three fifty eight in singles. So right, yeah. and I know a lot of times, a lot of times the the WTA doubles has been criticized, even by former players, um, for being less, for being more like four singles players on a court playing like less doubles, you know, classical, you know, traditionalist pleasing tactics and things like that. So I mean, it's a different sort of product. But again, the men's, the men's pace and everything is. I don't know. They schedule it at weird times for us when it's not convenient to what we're mostly covering. There's not much appetite for coverage, which I realize is a self, you know, a psych cyclical thing. We don't write about it, so there's no appetite. Nothing get put on TV, so no, people don't get to like it. So doubles is disadvantaged in those ways. But I don't know if it's going to change at any point. Yeah, I mean, it's in an interesting discussion to have, though, in terms of like, is is it better to have double specialists dominate your tour? as the as the ATP has in terms of being able to kind of like market this very separate entity like you know what i mean and um and have it be about the best of doubles tennis because it's so specifically doubles or is it better to have you know what happens on the WTA side which is you know a few it's a little bit more singles player driven so oh, yeah. and you get star maybe, power. You get i Williams's i agree with you that maybe the tactics are not as sophisticated as double specialists might bring to the table um i don't know i'm genuinely asking it's just a, rhetor yeah. a rhetorical is it better i don't know I'd, so i'd have to wait i'd have to weigh it back and forth so if anyone out there is a doubles uh, specialist and you know follows it closely and it be more opportunities to streaming keeps increasing uh doubles will get picked up more and more hopefully as these things fill out so it'll be easier to be a fan um if you're someone like uh alini Kaleon, is that how you oh say it? yes, uh, love her. It's a great double. She is uh, the follow on Twitter. Yes, you, you have to follow Aline Kaleon yeah. of of Brazil. Amazing, met her. No one loves doubles as much as she does, and is as knowledgeable. And I've learned so much just following her about the doubles game. So there you go. So we just listened to her podcast really for this question, which is yes. where this went on. <laughs> um, a next question from Daniel Kahana asks, "What do you think of Francesca Schiavoni?" And the fact that she's still going without much success. And do you think that she's diminishing her legacy by doing so? And does it matter? So I know. Of course, First of all, she talk... won a title. 
<laughs> this year. She, she, she won a very low-level title, but she did win she a title. She did, yes. but she did win a title, the Rio Open. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Francesca, I after don't having, think... After, yeah, after, I will say, just re- recap, after she lost in qualies in Australia this year, if you remember. Yeah. yeah no, for so. sure. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that for, for, for a player specifically, like Francesca Schiavone, can you really diminish... Fran's legacy? I really don't think that you can. I understand on the whole the concept of a player playing on and people thinking that they're diminishing their legacy by doing it, especially, you know, great champions. I know this conversation or this debate comes up surrounding specifically players like a Venus Williams, for example. Like, should Venus still be playing? Is it diminishing her her legacy? I remember uh, an agent turning to me and saying, you know, about three years ago that it was diminishing Martina Hingis's legacy to be playing uh, doubles. You know, you're, this is here's this great singles champion, and she's playing. She's like toiling away on the doubles circuit. This is before she got to number one with Sonia. Um, you know, so obviously this is a discussion that comes up quite a bit. I just don't think that with Francesca in particular that it that it that it does that. I think that at the end of the day, you know, we've talked about this a gazillion times. Like, why don't players retire? And this goes into the conversation that we were having before Ben about all these retirements that were thought we thought were going to come in 2016 and that didn't happen at the end of the day prize money in you know tennis has increased to a level where you know getting in to a main draw is fine it's enough to, oh, yeah. to kind of keep you going and you why would you turn away that money especially when you have francesca who is a grand slam winner meaning that she is um, entitled to ask for as many wild cards as she wants Obviously, tournaments don't have to grant them to her, but there is no limit in with respect to how many wild cards she can take. So that's a big opportunity for her. Appearance fee money, a big opportunity for her. And also just the desire to want to finish your career the way that you want to on a good note. And that is where I think that tennis players get into a little bit of trouble because obviously every week could be the note, right? Like yep. you could lose in the first round of qualies like 10 straight weeks and then win a tournament. Um, and that might be when you want a bit of do, but, uh, on the whole, just generally, no, I don't, I don't think that it diminishes her legacy at all. I think especially maybe uniquely to Schiavone with her career arc too. I think that she was, is this very beloved player or was a very beloved champion when she won the French Open for the first time or one for the one time she won it in 2010, because it was very out of nowhere. And it was this person who'd been like a journey woman by a, a more, generous or you know harsh definition of that whatever you want to call it because she had been you know in the top 20 at least for a while um and who hadn't ever broken through and that she finally did it i don't think it was great but i don't think people see her you know toiling away you know in qualities or whatever and like wow that's below you yeah you need to go it's it's kind of her ethos right i mean i think it's different than um someone like um I don't know, like a Danielle Hantikova, who was a top five player, you know, 14 years ago and is, was playing French Open, qualified for the French Open through qualities this year, who didn't have quite this, who was more of a, um, you know, a, a cover girl of the sport and, you know, a marketing person and had all the glamour side of it going. So when you see her in qualities, it feels, it seems a little bit more um, out of place than Schiavone, just because of their persona and the sort of demeanor they bring to the court. But, but Hantikova, to her credit, you know, really seem to embrace the challenge of playing qualities and got through it, which is not easy, especially when you're somebody who everyone's watching and sort of gawking at you having sunk to this level, quote unquote. 
Um, so she's doing well there, or what not? I mean, she's adapting there. And there's other, and Skivoni's also, you talk about the wild cards and appearance fees. She's getting not that many wild cards to the point where I think that she's taking up space on the tour, which is right. another issue I worry about, which is where, which is the kind of territory that I really thought that Leighton Hewitt got into in the last few years of his singles career and his doubles career. Who knows? He'll probably, still go, he'll probably play something next year. Um, <laughs> just knowing him, he just will never go away. Uh, and he, he would get, I think he, in 2012, um, he got a calendar golden slam of wild cards into all four slams in the Olympics. And he wasn't really, content- if I remember correctly, he wasn't contending for much that year. Maybe he did okay in Australia. I think he did okay in Australia. He made like third or fourth round. Um, but generally was not talent contender. It was taken, not that there was great Australian talent ready to get those spots, but it just seemed like it was a time to seed the stage for him. And I don't get that sense for Skivoni. I mean, she's getting, what, one Rome wild card that's sort of right. owed to her. But other than that, um, there's not like there's a lot of great Italian players coming up who would be have a really worthy right. case who for she it. Robbing? They have enough. Yeah, there's not an obvious answer there. I mean, there are obviously Italian players, um, but none who would make it through qualities or, you know, be contending in qualities. So if you're not going to be contending in qualities, I don't think you have any you know, right, quote unquote, to a main draw wild card or feeling wronged if you don't get one. Um, so yeah, so, and she's and she's a fan favorite and people enjoy watching her. Yeah. So the diminishing legacy thing is tricky because I mean, it, it I understand that it's a real phenomenon. The people have recency bias. They think about players from what they've seen now. I mean, if you were a tennis fan who's only, only watching the sport for a long time, I mean, even the last like six years, you would have a very different impression of like what Venus Williams's legacy is than someone who has been around the sport for 20 years and who remembered her as a really disruptive, dominant uh, force who was, you know, really uh, a hunter and not a hunted or whatever you want. That's not a bad, good analogy at all. But <laughs> who's someone who was, uh, you know, a young buck, so to speak, or whatever, a young person coming and charging rather than being the sort of, out to pasture kind of player who's like a swan song kind of mode they talk about her in for the last while um so i don't think but it doesn't matter to them the only player it well, clearly doesn't matter if she keeps playing and doesn't mind the fact that she's gonna have to go out there and potentially lose and grind against players she wouldn't have to like her wimbledon semifinal run was mm. remarkable but yeah. it was a lot of winning ugly and a lot of making you know a lot of how the sausage is made in terms of the score lines against some players you wouldn't think she would have trouble with like but and even Maria last Sakari fall you know i mean like this that. conversation yeah. surrounding venus needing to yeah. to hang it up has been going on for quite some time obviously oh, yeah. especially with respect to you know her diagnosis with shogun syndrome and you know no one thought she was going to win dubai again no one thought i mean she won wuhan then she goes and wins the wins the inaugural you know tournament in zhuhai this year you know she picks up another title in kuala lumpur yeah semifinals um you know at uh, at wimbledon who knows what happens if she gets that win over pliskova at uh, at the us open yeah. i mean venus was on the brink and she got a, a, a silver medal uh in doubles uh yeah. mixed doubles mixed, at, yeah. at, the, at the olympics like the stories with respect to Venus and what she's been able to do the last couple of years, I think that is the big argument against this idea of like, kind of like, oh man, like, what are you doing? You're ruining your legacy. But what if this happens? Right. Isn't the she only, then cementing it? I think you're right. And the only player who I can think of, maybe there's two, but the only player I can think of who really took the, I don't want to tarnish my legacy route recently was mm. Roddick. 
Yeah. And Rod- Roddick kind of got out once he s- seemed to think it was a downhill ahead. And he was only 30, and which is young by today's standards because Federer is still going at 35. And Roddick very well might have had, you know, a couple slam, maybe a slam semi or two left in him if things had broken his way. Um, and he won two titles the year he retired. He won Eastbourne Atlanta, I think, if I remember correctly, in 2012. So, and he's now 35, I guess, 34, 35. And he, maybe there are what ifs for him. And players like Schiavone yeah. and Venus don't have that. I mean, you know, I think another player that comes to mind is one yeah. who hung it up and, and doesn't have what ifs or uh, is Marion. I think Bartoli, that, uh, yeah, yeah, I think that on some level Bartoli kind of deep down maybe knew that she was never going to be able to match those heights of winning Wimbledon again mm-hmm. and was kind of like done. Like that it wasn't, it was like, well, then, you know. Although she was a different model because she like, I think, felt this opportunity to go out on top. Because she left, you know, before True. the next slam. Even if it wasn't, you know, you know, she doesn't talk yeah, about like the, Panetta level. The, the second round losses in Canada and Cincinnati that were actually the last part of her career. But, you know, she did, yeah, like like Panetta, sort of be like, knowing when to walk away, if you yeah. want to say Costanza. that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Marion Costanza. Exactly. I see her being a tremendous Seinfeld character. Oh. If only. If only. Just Anyone the scenes to, with her and Kramer would be tremendous. Anyone wants to drop that screenplay into our inbox, we would happily take that. <laughs> Please do. Please do. Uh, speaking of legacy and stuff, here's a question from Abid Rahim, who asks, uh, depending on, he asked this before the year is over, uh, depending on his 2016 results, so now incorporating those, what are the chances that Djokovic enters the GOAT conversation? Ah, the GOATs. Oh, We're GOAT. Now. Goating. We can never get enough of the goat conversation. Who isn't in the goat conversation? <laughs> That's a good you know what I mean? Like everyone's like, well, what about this person? How dare you disrespect this person? It's like, yeah, okay, I guess. Let's put them in the conversation. They shouldn't be in the conversation. Well, that was fun. Well, okay, um, let's, 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 let's set the framework then. Who is in the goat? This is all, because what Abid is saying is not, is this person the goat, but are they in the conversation? So I think I think Djokovic is in the conversation, but in with an incomplete score so far. And if he stopped now, he would not be it. Yeah, it's it's That's like the feeling. in progress. Yeah, the incomplete. Yeah, in college, yeah. where you know your midterm grades come out before, or your progress report comes out before you've taken your midterms or whatever. Sure. Um. Yeah, he's absolutely in the conversation. I don't. I would absolutely like take issue with anyone who's like, no, he's not in the conversation. Yeah, he absolutely is. But so much depends on what how the next like three years, I guess, kind of pan well, out for him. Also, what I'm saying I I just don't think if you say and obviously. We don't know, and talk about the issues of comparing generations A and comparing active players to like inactive players. Like I think if if you if Novak stops now, I don't think there's a reasonable debate that puts him ahead of Federer in the True. in the Agreed. conversation or Agreed. Nadal. I don't think they both have more Agreed. slams. They both they both have uh, more time at number one. Well, not maybe not more time at number one for Nadal, but um, they both have more slams total. They both were sort of. I don't know. I mean, yeah. So I, I don't think he's quite there yet. Uh, but he's he's in the. I mean, just by numbers. And this goes back to what we said last episode about right. slams becoming the currency. Um, he has he's there in that category. And the good thing about him is he also is getting there in the other category too. We should talk about Courtney, which is a sort of week to week tour dominance that used mm-hmm. to be the more uh, standard or the more common goal than racking up just the big titles. Yeah, and I take uh, issue with anyone who diminishes that. I right. think that winning week in, week out, showing up, 
um it's 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 so hard yeah. you know and, and that Joe... he does it and he made it look so easy for so long is just remarkable i mean there was talk not it was you know delirious talk but there were people saying like huh i wonder if novak could win all nine masters tournaments this year at some point it was obviously wasn't going to come close it didn't come close to happening i think he was on pace for it though and pulled out of madrid the one year whatever year it was that he, he won the first three mm-hmm. yeah um and it was reasonable and he's on pace for this jokemon thing of being the first one to win all nine which no one's done <laughs> i love that you try to drop it as though that's a thing and not a thing totally, that you invented totally oh jokemon like, oh totally Joke-y-mon. you know this jokemon well, the, thing that everyone is is is, the, is talking about he's definitely in the conversation <laughs> the other the other name for it that i also made up myself is it's called becoming the grandmaster yeah the grandmaster makes far more sense than than jokemon although i like jokemon Jokimon is, is, is more satisfying and it's fitted to him. Although, what if Murray gets Jokimon first is the joke. That'd be funny. It would you, just just, be... you just helped me complete my 2017 wish list. <laughs> so, I mean, he could, though. Be hilarious. He could. He Murray could get... Murray is just missing, what, Monte Carlo, Monte Carlo. and Dean Wells. And so yeah. he'll actually have a chance to do it before Novak will. Novak needs Cincinnati. But before that, if Murray... You know, gets Indian Wells, which is not out of the question. He's been up and down. He's been not consistent there, but he used to be okay there. He made a final, at least yep. one. And I think just one. Um, so just if one. he wins there, then he'll have a shot to complete the set at Monte Carlo, which would be pretty amusing. Um, and then he enters the GOAT conversation. Uh, but no, uh, Novak is a GOAT. I, mean, I think he's still in progress. He's not hasn't done anything to... I don't think there's any clear asterisk with him. If anything, he has the credit of really having to break through against two guys at their best and didn't do it forever. I mean, he was, didn't win a slam. No, I'm sorry. This is going to sound harsh, but he only won one slam between what, between 06 and 2010 when he first was you know getting onto the tour full time. Um, when Novak, when, sorry, when Rafa and Roger at their best um, and he sort of was able to shove them off to the side through a lot of persistent pounding in 2011. Um, but yeah, he's, he's on, he's on pace. Um, here's a different question, Courtney. I guess if you have no other thoughts on this exact question, does it matter who the goat is? Existentially, no. We talk about it all the time, and people. I think "goat" as an acronym is broken more into like common um, uh, parlance of like non-tennis. I used to right. only hear it in tennis, and now I hear it more places. Agree. I think I heard Serena use it in her undecided thing. Say "goat." Uh, I still find I, it jarring. I but. loved it. Not undecided. Um, undefeated. Undefeated. Right. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, she was not undecided about that. She was not. She was the one moment for those people who haven't watched the Serena interview on ESPN for the undefeated with Common. Like you absolutely should watch it. And the clips are on the ESPN website or the undefeated website. But the most like kind of like cool moment was her really taking ownership of the GOAT debate. And like Common asked like this very open ended question. Like, do you think it's ironic that a black woman is in should is in the conversation you know, for possibly being the greatest athlete of all time. And Serena kind of like, without even Why really would... missing a beat, like looks directly at him and is like, I think that if I were a man, I would have been in the GOAT conversation years ago. And she like rolls her eyes as she says it, like she's so exasperated. Would... It was kind of a weirdly low key, powerful moment of just like, I was Serena being like, this is so freaking ridiculous. That seems Which like a setup, like, cool. Why would it be ironic? I don't get that framing at all. Well, he framed it as like, kind of like in it's the a... context of, for all of the discussion of like kind of men in sport and like whatever that it would be a black woman in tennis that could possibly go down as being like the greatest of all time 
so a couple weeks ago at trivia, um, they had a Serena Williams themed round, mm. which thankfully I did well on. <laughs> and it was like ten questions about Serena, and I tweeted the I tweeted a photo of the answers, and that's really guessed the questions. And we got people talking about there was one of the questions was about the Nike campaign about her being, you know, not greatest female athlete ever, just greatest athlete ever, you know, striking yeah. through the word female, and that's part of debate among like people sitting at my table about that question. And one of them said, um, he doesn't think that Serena can be the greatest female athlete or the greatest athlete because she doesn't play a contact sport. What? And like, that was like their rationale. I was like, uh, Whoa. okay. And I was like, so you wouldn't like ever count like a baseball player. Right. They was, they, they a were pitcher. Like, uh, no. And they, I guess, I don't know if they paint themselves in the corner or just like have odd, you know, criteria, but you know, a lot of people, tennis is not, you know, always women, men's or women's. I mean, I don't, you know, Federer, I don't think he's in that many greatest athlete of all time discussions either. I don't think tennis as a sport is always in America is put on that sort of plane yeah, period. Besides sure, just being I a understand woman. that from a totally, you know, tennis isn't a big deal. So people don't think that your accomplishments as a tennis player are a big and it's deal. Not and therefore you cannot be part of like the greatest of all time this discussion. But I think the whole contact sport thing, that person is stupid. Don't be friends with that person. <laughs> Never play trivia with that person. That person's an idiot. They're pretty good trivia though. Whatever. But their logic was not great. That was not great. No, I think I, like, hopefully effectively was like, huh, what? No. <laughs> to that. In a way that was disarming. And so. the interesting thing, I'll go going back to the Serena interview about this topic, is that then Common followed up that question with, what if you were a white man? And Serena didn't take the, like, she was, like, totally dismissed it. She's like, white, black, doesn't matter. I just had to be a man. Yeah. If I was a man, I would have. And he kind of was like, you don't think it would have mattered? He's like, and she kind of took it to this whole conversation about how no, like it's about like how invisible women are. It has nothing to do with race with respect to this particular thing, which I thought was like a very sophisticated yeah. and interesting argument. I could have seen her like taking the bait the other way. So anyway, like all I'm saying, watch the I, watch the interview. It's pretty good. It sounds like classic recent Serena. The Serena does not take much bait. This and is she true. Gets, she gets offered a lot of bait. By questions and press yeah. conferences and by common sidebar i think it's strange to be interviewed by your ex-boyfriend on tv i think it's <laughs> interesting but i think it's an odd technique i mean if it worked for like in terms of them having that you know intimacy or you know familiarity right away and made for good tv good i just think it's an odd framing because he's not like he's an espn employee or anything right um but yeah i think that she's if you look at her transcripts at the u.s open or wimbledon um, and, you know, she talks about that. She's just like, I'm not getting into any controversy. I'm not asking about anything about controversy or whatever. She, as much as she is getting more of a voice as an, uh, a social advocate for things, she diffuses so many more opportunities than she chooses to uh, ignite or blow up. And that's what sort of made the Ray Moore press conference stand mm, out. Because that's the true. one where she was like, nope, I am taking this head on and swinging away. Mm-hmm. Just not always been her mo. It was lately. beautiful. It, it was, was a delicious moment. I have to say, that was when I li- actually re-listened to that NCR episode recently. Mm. One after that, that that was my one of my favorite ones. It's called. It's the episode called "Ladies Know What I'm Talking About." <laughs> yeah, that's right. And it's it's, <laughs> it's it's tremendous. So if you want an NCR like best of 2016 regular episode, I'm pretty sure for me that's my pick. Is that episode. love it? If you can call that regular, because like the whole year was so strange. Like there's nothing regular happened this year at all. Nothing. From PK, who asks, wood to graphite frames, gut to synthetic strings, where will the next most impactful tech advancement be for players? A short answer, I think, to this question is if we knew we'd make a lot of money selling it. <laughs> Very I true. Assume. I do and, live 30 miles from Silicon Valley, so, you know. 
if I knew, I'd be definitely a millionaire at this point. And I get, you know, I get, I'm sure you do too. I get like some, you know, press release emails about, you know, tennis apps and things like that. For sure. Pay players, you know, meeting each other, whatever. But in terms of most impactful tech, I mean, I think it, it's coming on all sides. And that's one of the cool things. I'm working on a, a story on hockey tech too now. And just like the amount of different ways that you can, um, you know, seek to improve existing equipment is like endless. You can do, there's more different equipment in, in hockey than tennis, but in tennis, you can change, you know, they could change the balls. I mean, that could be a big thing if they speed up or change the balls in some way to make power, uh, to give offense an advantage over defense, because we clearly are in a very defensively tilted era, especially in the men's game. Mm. Um, or it could be a change to strings and something else to happen to make the spin even crazier. Or it could be a change to, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, my... Uh, tech, some sort of more like uh, uh, technology, you know, analytics type thing around that yeah. completely different or that's recovery where... or medical stuff or whatever it could be so many different things that's where i think that it's going to end up going in terms of like the next big frontier is that if you could have a is the analytics side mm. so whether it's technology within rackets you know which obviously has been developed with PlaySight mm-hmm. and sony um with respect to you know measuring Bob-a-lot, rpm yeah. Bob-a-lot, yeah measuring rpms and measuring that aspect of things i think that's important i think you know whether it's putting tech into shoes to be able to measure steps measure speed measure agility i think that's important um you know tech into balls being able to to really accurately and very specifically be able to say like rpms and curve and and shot placement all these sorts of things and then from there then allow that information to be made publicly available that's or a big step right i know and and you and i obviously fall on the same same side on this but but you know basically anything that would allow for that whether it's it's you know um continued evolution of live score apps you know not unlike you know what what resultina does where you know more analytics are built into than that app in terms of results than just right. the score line right like being able to pull out narrative things and key stats and and things like that i think that's massive so i think those are for me that's where confession i don't know if it's gonna go that way because i don't know if there's money in that but that's where i would like for it to go i think that's a big big gaping hole that that we need to figure out how to fill um with minimal investment it's it's very frustrating because it just seems like it feels to me as someone who's on the outside of the governing bodies that it just would take one person maybe maybe who knows maybe there's a new itf media person maybe he'll you know immediate pressure on this person if they're listening to you know open up the stats and make hey, things steve different. Wilson. If, yeah if steve wilson if somebody if somebody else wants to make this a thing or make it a um uh, something a pet project it could be done so quickly in terms of getting the data out there and then it's not about just having the data out there it's that all the things you can do research-wise once data is there especially get to more um more uh richer data like uh hawkeye and things that show ball tracking and things like that where you can start re- coaches can go in and say like okay you know there is actual you know real consistent numbers behind showing that you should be hitting kick serves down break point to the deuce court you know at 1540 right and this is always the smartest odds play and this is what you should do and, and people I know some purists would be like, well, that would take all the art out of it. And you wouldn't have to do it every time. But there isn't actual data on those basic things. We don't know that kind of stuff. We don't know, There's conventional wisdom, and conventional wisdom could be wrong. Right. Like, things about, like, are lefties better at serving to the, you know, 
at, to the ad court? And if so, by how much? Like, we don't know. As basic as that thing is, like, what percentage of aces go to each side of the court? That should be the most obvious thing on live score, and they just that data is not there. And so tennis is so far behind other sports. When you talk about, like, uh, Moneyball or whatever mm-hmm. other big, impactful advancements happened in other sports, that happened because ten- because baseball had a huge wealth of meticulous uniform statistics to draw on from its major league baseball games and maybe even at lower levels too um dating back decades and tennis doesn't have the beginning of the foundation of anything i mean there are there are side projects like tennis match charting project or whatever that have some stuff but it's still the sample size i think they would say even is so small that it's not yet ready to make a dent on anything really or it could but it's all still so beta and everything and so i just think if tennis and like you said, it's the, it's the cynical, sad part of it is that the governing bodies who are the key holders or the gatekeepers for this information need to feel like it's something in the, like there's something in it for them. I don't know when that conversion takes place, but yeah, I mean the problem that's, is that's is, the big thing. Yeah, I mean, is that it, it takes incentive, and incentive, at least within the the U.S. market, means means a uh, you know financial remuneration. And I think it's I think it's more I of an do... outside U.S. problem than U.S. I, think... I just I just don't know that there's money in it, but it needs to be a thing that happens. The only reason that there isn't money in it, like, you know, within Moneyball, within the way that the Oakland A's, my baseball right. team, was able to to kind of come up with, not come up with that system. Obviously, it existed before with Bill James and everything, but with Billy Bean and what he did, it was out of necessity. It was out of being a baseball team that had a minimal budget and trying to maximize it in order yeah. to get a return. Within tennis, developing these sorts of technologies and making information that takes work to to obtain and then making it public and giving it away for free, how do you make money off of that? That I don't entirely know. And until you fix that part of the equation, then the first part will never happen. And there's no general managers in tennis and there's no No. team organizations. I mean, if let's say... Hawkeye works because Hawkeye was able to take its technology and be the first mover and sell at a premium to tournaments, to, um, you know, broadcast, especially because obviously, as we know, all money is with broadcast, be able to sell it to ESPN and, you know, uh, ATP Media Group or whoever is the broadcast rights. And, and here we now have Hawkeye. So Hawkeye could make money off of it and can staff and it, was, it and to and grab it became an officiating tool, yeah. Exactly. Officiating tool. That was a big boondoggle, you know. It's hard to it's hard to see, you know, play site and all these sorts of things that, you know, that people are doing with wearable tech within tennis, uh, racket technology and things like that. Obviously, they're doing it to sell rackets. Yeah. Right. So that's where they get. So when it comes to all the other stuff, I'm just like, where does the money come from? If we can figure that out, then people will bank it. Okay, on the place, I think I have written an article about play site um, and couple other i had played on one of the courts it was horribly embarrassing (laughs) multi-camera views of everything you're doing wrong and i was like at my like absolutely like not pressure just like having to be terrible that day because i play like once every five months if that and hold a racket that often because i don't you know like i say i'm much better at watching tennis than playing tennis okay chill out you suck at tennis continue okay i'm making a lot of excuses (laughs) for myself but one of the main things that play site can do um and maybe other formats could do also is they just have video cameras all around the courts and let you review video. I mean, tennis doesn't even have video. They talk about that's a basic thing, reviewing tape. And that's something that I know that Torben Belts has been very active with, with Kerber, uh, his charge this year, a lot of reviewing videotape and not being afraid of that. And she's buying into that. And they will go back, I think it was like, what? Isn't at, that you, you, like at, U, at US Open. Only they just went, happening? 
at U.S. Open, like they watched the rematch of the, they watched the uh, Cincinnati final against Pliskova the day before, which would seem like the most basic, obvious sports thing to do. But in tennis, we are so far behind and so like weirdly <laughs> in a parallel universe analog. of like weirdly analog and weirdly just like luddite. Well, about and things. not and not weird about and, it. I mean, I think that the issue there, and wow, we have completely taken this to a different place. But I think that the issue is that because tennis you know, these players have to fund themselves out of pocket. Everything mm-hmm. is necessarily analog, right? Like no one, at the end of the day, no. you have to set your budget and your expenditures. And do you then invest in these things when you haven't been convinced that there's a payoff? You don't, don't think so they'll go it. on YouTube and they'll go watch videos of players. They've always done that. No, but with respect to think... analyzing themselves, they've, they've never been as... I don't even um, think they're doing that, though. I think a lot of players, especially, and we talked about this before, especially in I WTA, guess. especially in WTA, are, like, superstitious or just don't want to upset their psychology by, like, going back and watching a match of, a, like, a, the footage of a loss the day before a match. Sure. Maybe they, maybe they are doing it and not always talking about it. Yeah, some of it is just, that, for sure. Some of but... it is that. But just, like, the, the ways that, I don't know, that prep could be a lot more professional and uniform, WTA especially, but also ATP in terms of that sort of thing. And, you know, what the way, you know, NFL teams have, you know, staffs of like video well, you have tech film specialists. Day. Yeah, film day, exactly. And tennis day, could certainly. You don't certainly... suit up, you sit down, you watch yeah. film. So if, if if we can count YouTube as an impactful, impactful tech <laughs> advancement, which is another reason why tennis uh, players to the extent and coaches to the extent they have any sway with federations on this should be like, hey, guys, maybe stop yanking all the footage off YouTube because it helps yeah. us. Thanks. Uh, that's an interesting. True. That could play into that. That's interesting. Sort yeah. of side of things. Yeah. Um, next question. This is a question somewhat, well, not exactly related from Gene Simeon, who asks uh, just a basic tennis glossary question. What are some common tennis technical terms that a spectator should know and should pay attention to? Uh, for example, what's a slice serve? topspin, racket speed, or inside-out shots. So these are some pretty basic things we'll go over. And I remember, and obviously people listening to the show, um, obviously it takes a certain level of commitment to w- listen to our show, um, to tennis. Uh, or you but this like is not tennis, a unique question. Weird. We've had no, similar questions get, like we, this we one get, in our mailbox yeah, before. We get, we get pretty, you know, uh, elementary level or entry level sort of questions, which is totally good. And tennis should, you know, do a better job clearly at making it, not having barriers of entry to the sport in this sort of language. So let's break some of these down, Courtney. Uh, why don't we start? You want to talk about s- spin, slice serves, top spin? Sure. You want me to do those? Oh, well, go ahead. You're you're the one that actually plays, so you can. Oh. <laughs> I but I okay. mean obviously I know these terms, but I'm gonna I'm gonna let you be the technical speaker on it. So I'm not probably gonna get all these exact science right, but top spin. Uh, there's you you put spin on the ball based on the angle at which you make contact with the ball. Topspin is the most common one in the sport, uh, especially on ground strokes, where you basically are brushing up on the ball as you hit it, um, which makes the ball sort of, it's hard <laughs> making a gesture with my fingers, which makes a lot of sense, which you can't hear. Uh, but the ball is sort of is, rota- is spinning, for- rotating forward as it moves forward, and that makes it dive back into the court faster. And so it means that you can hit the ball harder and have excess, you know, more excess gravity on it to use a dumb term so that's not the right way to i never took physics so i'm not great at physics no that's accurate yeah but excess force and then when it lands it then kicks because that 
that spin is obviously still continuing within the ball in terms of like that forward rotation when it hits the ground, depending on how much uh, grit and sand is in the ground, um, which is a discussion that we have a lot of times when we talk about court speed, Mm -hmm. then the tennis ball can grip the court and, and kick up. Um, yeah. So when you look, when you talk about topspin, you talk about Rafael Nadal um, in terms of being the guy who basically brought topspin oh, yeah. in tennis to a completely different level. So players like him, mold, yeah. yeah, players like him, players like a Jack Sock as well on the forehand side, just watch what their ball does and how they hit it, which is that they start with the racket head very, very low, you know, almost near their ankles, and they just whip it over the ball, and that allows them to clear the ball to clear the net by like three feet, which is right. amazing but then still land like at the service line, which is like, just if you think about the physics of that is right. ridiculous. Versus a very flat hitter, like a Sharapova or like a Pliskova or, then I mean, uh, Sharapova's added more shape to her shots. Kvitova for sure, Bouchard, very mm-hmm. flat hitter. I mean, these are players who hit the ball with very little neck clearance and the ball doesn't rotate that much. And so they need to keep it lower to have it just sort of land in. And it, it can be a lot more prone to breaking down. And you certainly see this with Bouchard and Kvitova. Um, there's a lot. They, when there's less margin. The rails, less for margin error. for error, right? So but it, it can't be. It, it can be effective when it's at its best. It can be maybe more effective. Del Potro hits very flat for the most part, um, but it, it has more margin for error too. Roger. There's also Roger. Roger, yeah, it's less definitely less spin than than Rafa, but more than yes, most WTA players. Let's say for sure. Um, there's a big difference. Most of the men hit with more toss than the women, generally speaking. Um, the, there's also side spin you can put on the ball, which makes it sort of cut, which you don't see that often, which a slice serve would usually have that. And there's also backspin, which is usually you see on a drop shot or something like that. Where the or ball, slice backhands. Right, where the ball can, um, in an extreme case of a drop shot, hit the ground and then move backwards. You do it with little enough pace and close enough to the net, or, or can just sort of die and dig into the court that way. Um, other terms you mentioned directly, racket speed, I think is fairly straightforward, just how fast... The racket is moving, uh, usually with regards to your arm and wrist and how much you get there. And people with big racket speed are known, again, like uh, a sock is talked about for racket speed a lot. Where you, and curious for sure, where you generate a lot of pace just there. And it's not all... Through the, through the hit zone. So basically, it's kind yeah. of measured from where you take the racket back. And then you whip it, obviously, through the zone to hit your shot and then the follow through. But, but that speed that you bring through from when you start the swing through about like maybe two or three inches past the ball is kind of what we look at with the with respect to racket speed. And the more whippy and more wristy that you hit that shot, particularly on the forehand, uh, you know, that, that will pretty much um, create kind of a whip type motion. And that'll that'll create a, a ridiculous amount of racket head speed. And that creates top spin and all that good stuff. It's also used within service motions as well. Mm-hmm. Talking about the racket head speed through the serve. But the faster the speed, the more spin, probably the harder you're hitting the ball. Racket speed is the number one thing that usually determines pace of shot. I mean, it's it's a reason why, you know, you can have players who hit the ball incredibly hard and not be, like, muscle-bound people. Uh, and you don't always see that correlation in tennis between being able to hit the ball hard and having clear physical strength. And you certainly see this. Like, I remember, you know, in high school having, you know, guys who were, like, finishing who were like sprinters or like on the field side of things in track and field they would usually finish practice earlier than tennis would and occasionally like they would like wander down and like want to pick up a racket and like think they were all strong and like hit the ball like a not very hard or be like into the back fence and just you see that racket speed is one area where somebody like a uh like federer obviously a great example of this yeah who can be someone who's not uh 
even like a even like a Rafa level of muscle, much less you know uh, an NFL linebacker type thing, and still get incredible pace on the ball, and just shows how much timing is the main thing in tennis as a skill, rather than brute strength on any level. Yeah, and racket nothing speed. Muscle, also... Nothing muscle hurts. I mean, like right. you look at like obviously like a Serena and a team and Favrinka and players who have more muscle than most of their competitors can that physical strength does pay dividends for sure and one of the things too that racket head speed comes into is actually the opposite which is when players get very nervous and very tense they yeah. start to slow down yeah. on their swing they start to miss and so if you watch enough tennis you'll see this especially during tight moments a player doesn't really finish the ball finish through it they don't take a huge cut at the ball because they're quite tight and quite nervous so that's where the opposite of of good racket head speed poor racket head speed or, or slow through the ball or you know choking on their swing that's where that comes in is when 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 they start to feel the nerves you start to see that that racket slow down a little bit uh the next question or next term brought up was inside out shots and this is again a kind of a hard thing to do in audio form i feel like it's much easier to draw a (laughs) a chart on a on a chart of a court but basically uh there's four main types of directions for shots if you're at the baseline which are cross court uh which is let's take a right-handed player to start if you hit a forehand um, from the from your perspective, a player like on the lower side of the court, if you're watching on TV, the lower half of the screen rather, from the right lower right corner hitting it across to the upper left corner, uh, from deuce court to deuce court, uh, it's a cross court forehand, and the same thing on the opposite corner uh, on backhand from the lower left corner of the screen to the upper right corner, it's a cross court backhand. The hypotenuse um, of a triangle, if you imagine it that way, right. Um, and yeah. then, and then, so I guess, and then down the line is when you have. It sounds it's pretty simple. Um, well, it's not always as obvious, I guess, in terms of versus inside in and things like that. But down the line is where you have a forehand and you hit it from the lower right corner of your screen to the upper right corner. So just basically going there and doesn't usually cross your body. Um, you know, the ball doesn't trajectory of the ball doesn't go across where you're standing. Uh, same thing for backhand. And then inside out is where you have the where you sort of are standing with the ball um, closer to the middle of the court than you are. I think it's fair to say. And you hit it for inside out. You hit the ball um, for like a forehand. You're standing in the lower left corner of your screen in the ad court, and you hit it uh, same same direction basically as a cross court backhand would have been, but it's on the forehand side. And an inside in is where you are standing there and you hit it across your body. So it's going from the lower left half of the court to the upper left half of the court. Uh, and th- those are those are becoming more important shots and more played shots. I think Jim Courier was someone who was talked about as a real person who as a big innovator of making the inside out forehand a big part of his tactics. And so that's pretty recent in tennis terms. I mean, that's in the 90s. So... Um, yeah, it's something that's a big part of the game now. Rafa is known for his inside-out shots. And inside-in forehands he hits a lot of, too. Um, it, it can create a lot of disguise, and it's a big thing if you're a player who has a, a big preference for forehand. And you, recording, you were saying before that on WTA as well, there are some backhand-dominant players who will hit the inside-out, inside-in from the backhand side as well. Yeah, the inside the inside out backhand from the middle of the court is, is a shot that, like Azarenka, for example, is incredibly good at hitting, and it's a great shot. It's a very effective shot for her. Um, 
she's the one that, that comes to mind. I know that Halep hits it as well. Um, you know, Kerber can doesn't hit it too often, but uh, it's a good shot for her. But Azarenka is really one that, that hits that shot really, really well. And it's, it's a very effective one. I think that one of the things to always remember with respect to inside out forehands and even inside in forehands where you run a, with the terminology of running around the shot, the ball to hit the forehand instead of just like hitting a backhand, which is like the easier with respect to footwork, the easier shot to hit is that the downside of it, because it's a great shot if it goes in, it's it's more likely going to be powerful if you hit the inside out forehand, but it takes you out of the court. Your court position after that shot is pretty bad because you're you're usually out in the, the, the left tram line if you're a right-hander. So you've opened up the entire you know, far side of the court if the if the other player can get it over there. So that's why tactically it's not like, you know, the shot you hit every single time. Sometimes that shot is not on because, you know, you, you're, you're just so out of the court that that shot needs to be a winner or otherwise you're going to lose the point. Yeah. And then, yeah, so that's, you got to be more aggressive. Generally, you see those being point finishing shots, make or, you make make or, break. or miss it. Yeah, yeah. You just have to go for more because you're out of position or you can hit one if you're somehow scrambling and just you hit something high and loopy that lets you get back in position if you're a more defensive player cough wozniacki cough <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh let's see another question we got from daniel bowman who asks why or how does the lta just the law and tennis association british governing body for those who don't know uh fail so consistently to produce tennis players even the successes like murray robson watson etc trained outside the system and the likes of kanta surged up the rankings when she lost lta support how can the lta fail so consistently for decades so daniel bowman pulling no punches here on the lta i think he is british so maybe he feels more personal attachment to this or more personal slight at his perceived failures um to be fair brits are not easy on the lta no, they're not. I mean, this is not, yeah. So this is a pretty consistent uh, critique, but go ahead. Sorry. So but I guess is, my question is, is the LTA markedly worse than its Grand Slam nation competitors? And I, I mean, I, they certainly, I don't know if now is the best time to go at them. I'll answer my own question first. Because obviously they just want, even if it's, you know, a asteriskable competition these days, for sure. They did just win a Davis Cup and make another semifinal. Andy Murray is number one. Uh, you know, Jamie Murray was number one earlier this year in doubles. Kanta got into the top 10 as having, you know, first in a generation success on the women's side. Um, and even if they don't have, if they weren't pipeline players, maybe it just shows that pipelines rarely work or haven't always worked. And it's not, there's no surefire assembly line method to making a tennis champion that anyone's found yet. Yeah, no, that that's definitely true. I mean, I think that the LTA, I mean, I, I suppose rightly gets the criticism, but also I do think that it's it's not a criticism that is specific to the LTA. So the LTA gets the criticism and the focus because ostensibly their coffers are the deepest. I mean, Wimbledon makes an incredible amount of money. Obviously, it's not run by the LTA, but it is within partnership with the LTA. So there's a lot of money that can go to it. It's a very... Um, well-off federation. And I think that, you know, when a few years ago, when the LTA invested in the new National Training Center in Roehampton, and it's a state-of-the-art training center, and, you know, lots of money went into it. I think that was one of those, you know, kind of symbolic um, shows of just like how wealthy the federation was, which then obviously opens up questions as to, okay, if you have all this money, why aren't we seeing 
you know, an assembly line of Grand Slam champions. And I think that it's such a frustrating charge to levy at a federation simply because if you look at tennis on the whole, especially right now, let alone, you know, looking at it through its, throughout its history, this is not a federation-based sport. Federations, there, there just isn't a, a, you know, science to creating a champion, which means that federations, which employ, because they have to, systems, cannot systematically create champions. And there has not been a single federation that has been able to do that. I mean, this question has to do with the LTA, but you look at the FFT, the French Tennis Federation. They have an incredible number of players, you know, that are elite, you know, top 50 on both the men's and women's side. When's the last time, right? I mean, the men have been in a drought since Yannick Noah. Yeah. Um, The women, you had Bartoli, who was outside of the FFT. Um, You had Moresmo, I suppose, would would have been the last uh, product there. Um, you know, so there's that. You was have she even like a big federation person? I'm not sure. I, I, I would have to go back and, and kind of brush yeah. up on my, my history. Um, you know, you I look don't... at Tennis Australia. Obviously, Stozer is a product of Tennis Australia. But obviously, we see all the issues that the Tomic, uh, Curios generation has with TA. Um, USTA, Serena, and Venus, very much outside of the federation. Um, kind of doing their own thing. Obviously, they get support but it's not as robust, you know, and I, you know, and then again, when you look at the great champions of a Roger and Rafa and, you know, Novak, Andy, they all, they all kind of worked outside of their system either because they had to, or, or because, well, a lot of times because they had to. Yeah. No, there are, I mean, it's becoming more centralized. I think it's an interesting timing for it. Cause I think just this past week, the USTA's right. uh, much awaited uh, national, center i forget what the exact title for it is the one in lake nona florida development center is this huge centralized thing where they're sort of a after having a regional model of different centers before they're trying to consolidate and have wanting everyone all their elite players at least have it available as an option but you know strongly encouraged i think it's fair to say to move to orlando area to be part of this unit and get access to elite you know training uh amenities and you know physical fitness and therapist you know resources and nutritionists and whatever else they have on offer there i'm sure it's good for them and there have there the like you said the number of players who've gone through the system and been usta products quote unquote is a, is a mixed bag i mean madison keys has had more usta training than most players um who've been successful so she is a top 10 player so she, i'm sure usta will want to take a lot of credit for her fairly probably um, to the extent that matters, that who takes credit for it or not. Um, and, and they are trying to be much more conscious uh, about, you know, sort of Bartoli-ish issues, even though they're not, she's obviously not American, about wanting to make sure that private coaches feel welcome to engage with them and don't feel uh, pressured to be, you know, feel like they're being squeezed out. But it is an interesting model for sure. And you mentioned the French, and just in terms of Daniel's point, I think the French men slam drought is one of the most, like, remarkable and under-talked about things in tennis. Although Carol Bouchard be... did write a long article about in men's Racket French magazine. tennis in Racket Magazine. So. She did. She did. And there was, and it was another one by... The first couple of paragraphs are scathing. It's beautiful. <laughs> it's a beautiful thing. No, it's true. But it compared to like how often you heard the name Fred Perry for the of previous course. Yes, absolutely. 30 years. You just never hear about... You don't hear about Noah nearly as much. And because the French don't seem to be as uh, anguished about it. Maybe to their credit. <laughs> as, yeah, that's know, actually As point. we are about Roddick. And they're, they're kind of like, eh, whatever. But they've had so many guys get into the top 10 
in the last 30 some years now since it's been there. I mean, just naming names, obviously the active ones now, you know, Gasquet, Sanga, Monfils, Simon, uh, and then before that, you have, you know, Clement, Grosjean, Pialine, uh, you know, and it go, it, it go further back than that, if you look at things like that. It, it's been a lot of players who've gotten up in there. I'm sure I missed a couple too, and not one slams. So there's no surefire method. And is that method better? You know, getting a lot of players into draws and being top 20 players, is that better than getting one lightning bolt more or less so far, slam champ and Murray? If, even though LTA didn't produce Murray on any level, um, you know, I don't know. It, it's a, it's a, there's different ways to measure it. You can make any federation look good or bad, depending on your metrics. Um, yeah, well, maybe I mean, you can use to think, make the LTA look good. They, used to, they were undeniably terrible for a long time. But yeah, I think that the, the general, to the extent that there's a system, I would personally back a system that is about numbers. So it's about the grassroots efforts to get kids to play. And maybe this is coming from a very American, you know, U.S. centric view where tennis is not a sport that most kids play. And if you become if you're just a, a really gifted athlete, then you're going to go end up getting poached to go play basketball, baseball, football, you know, whatever. So I think that from the U.S. perspective, you know, really focusing on grassroots level, getting people, getting kids in the door, supporting them, making it fun, keeping them within tennis, you know, growing the love of the game. And then the more that you have playing, the more that, you know, end up being good, you know, because obviously we're a huge nation just by a pure numbers game. We should have talented athletes who play tennis, who can be top 20 players and contend for slams if we play the numbers game. But to think that to imply or to believe that there is some sort of systematic way to create champions kind of to me really kind of mutes the uniqueness and specialness of champions. The whole point being that it is lightning in a bottle, that these people are special, the Federer's, the Serena's, the Djokovic's, the Murray's, the, you know, that they're special human beings and a, a conveyor belt does not spit those people out. The best thing that you should, can do, and I think that this is where the French Federation is incredibly um, solid, which is why I think that it's kind of the best model, is that they do play the numbers game. They support their players, they provide for their players everything that they need. Um, and then from there, it's up to the players to kind of be special. <laughs> And that's something that the Federation doesn't have power over. That is true. I think the interesting question for LTA is almost more, I'm curious just in terms of like the Fred Perry type number, I would be curious for more of a, an autopsy of like what they were doing quote unquote wrong in like the 60s, 70s and 80s and 90s. Like when there were, when it was a much smaller world in tennis, when they were really only- It was Hedman you know, and Rzezinski or bust. Well, even, even before that, I mean like even before Hedman era, like in the 80s and 70s, like why there weren't good British players. There, were, I mean, they were a Grand Slam nation, and tennis was much higher on their yeah, radar true. than most places. And back before, you know, the Serbias and the Russias and the Czech Republics, well, Czech is a little bit, we're already there. But, you know, most of those players came to the table, so to speak, why the Brits fell behind then. That's what I'm more, that's what I find more anomalous. Right now, they're kind of catching up. I think with internet and social media and, you know, YouTube and whatnot, everyone's kind of on the same, the playing field is leveled a little bit. You know, you can be a coach of like, I was just in Korea, you know, they can be in Korea, which is kind of an island tennis-wise and it doesn't have a huge tradition of, you know, producing tour level players, but they can learn from the outside much easier than they might've been able to before about, you know, ice baths and things like that, which you don't have to, you know, invent yourself now. 
Um, so I don't know. I, I think it's, that's what I'm sort of interested in, in terms of LTA. But yeah, my, my main rationale, my main moral of this story is to give the French guys more crap for not winning slams. <laughs> that's funny because I'm on the flip, which is like, let's give the French some credit for like kind of doing it right. And it's not their fault that Richard Gasquet gets nervous in big matches. And Sanga and Monfils and Simone and everybody. Yeah, I don't know. It, it's interesting because none of them, there's not, maybe Sanga, maybe. Maybe Sanga's, Monfils, Sanga was the guy. Monfils. Let's not pretend Sanga. Well, Monfils, but for Monfils to play the way that he plays, he has to have a brain the way that he has, which is like he likes that fun. He likes that flair. I think with Sanga, just like 5% more discipline and fitness. Here's, yeah. And I think that like that's what gets him there. Here's another question on geography of tennis from Kathy Cantwell, who asks, I'm old enough to be your mother. So that means I remember when Yugoslavia, Czechoslovakia, and the Soviet Union existed. I'd love to understand how the dissolution of all those countries and the establishment of Croatia, Serbia, Slovakia, Ukraine, etc. has impacted tennis, if at all. Uh, has it created tensions between players, coaches, sponsors, etc.? Players no longer have to defect, like Martina and Lendl. Uh, but what challenges do the players face as a result of this kind of global reorganization? Um, this is a question that probably was more fresh, not that it's a bad question at all now, but it was something that happened more, you know, when these countries were actually breaking apart in the 90s, um, for the most part, uh, and people had to realign. I know, like, for example, not that it's a big deal, but I think Ivanovic and Yankovic and Djokovic, and definitely Tetsarovic, because you around earlier, did originally possibly play under a Yugoslavia abbreviation, and then Serbia, Montenegro, and then Serbia. Um, they've been around long enough to have done that. But, um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure that it's, uh, all easy. I think for the most part, it seems like now with every, like I said before, maybe to my previous question, answer with everything being connected for the most part, the geopolitics, once you actually get on tour in terms of tensions are very, very rare. Like, I, I don't think Agreed. that I, from what I've seen that even like things like Ukraine and Russia, I don't think there's like tension between those players on tour that I've sensed ever. Um, you get way and... more tension between players on tour because somebody stole somebody else's massage than, <laughs> than their passport. Yeah. That's, no, that's, that's just true. across the board, I think is true in tennis, which is great. It is good. That's, that's a model for the world. In a lot of ways, and and you, you see that in doubles uh, too. Obviously, the most famous example um, we had him on the religion episode uh, it was Isam Qureshi and uh, Rohan Bopana playing together as India and Pakistan, or countries who are, uh, you know, at loggerheads or whatever term you want to use in terms of being having tense relationships. And there are occasional things. I mean, obviously, uh, for a long time there was the Malik Jaziri. Uh, Israel situation and other players from Muslim countries feeling pressure not to play Israeli athletes. Shahar Pair being denied Shahar a, Pair, visa. Uh, a visa right. to, but in, to the Middle but, East. But in terms of her specific question on these countries breaking up in the in Europe, which is mostly her focus, um, and I love this focus because I did, most of my major in college was on Eastern European anthropology, which is somewhat useful in tennis, not usually. <laughs> um I don't know how much the tensions are there. I mean, like, for example, the Serbs and the Croats on, on tour and the ATP especially are totally friendly. I and mean, there's no, like, underlying simmering tension between Djokovic and Cilic. And they example. really go out of their way to show that. Yeah, they I do. I feel like, especially with Djokovic and, and, and Cilic, I think that they really go out of their way to try and set an example for their countrymen that, you know, yeah, 
that, that no, it, they've it, swapped. I mean, I feel like they've swapped shirts at, 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 in situations. There's, you know, their hugs are always prolonged and, and, and they're genuine. Those are not like put upon. I didn't want to say that it's like performance. I mean, it's, it's genuine between them, but people just don't see nationality too much. I think that's mostly right. And I think that if anything, they are closer because they have a common language in Serbo-Croatian mm, and yeah. have some sort of shared culture. And there were there have been times there was a, um, a example uh, quite a few years ago. It was like 10 years. I guess it was Djokovic like very early in his career, maybe 07, when he played against Amir Delic in Australia. Right. And there yeah. were there were Oof. some clashes between Serbian and Bosnian fans out there in the, were chairs being the thrown. Oval, right. And the chairs being thrown was the famous part of the footage there. Yeah. And so those things to the extent they happen are more a fan issue. Um, I know that there've been I think there was a Serbia versus Croatia Davis Cup tie, I think something yeah. in Croatia and there were like banners or something hung from like some part of the city that were like anti whoever the other visiting country was. I think it was in Croatia. Um or things like that. So you know and I I was at a I wrote a story about uh, Demir Jumer, who's a Bosnian, uh, who was born during the you know the height of the conflict in Sarajevo, or there at least at least one height of the conflict in Sarajevo during the war there in the nineties, and he and his match was against Ivan Dodig, who was a uh, born in Bosnia but plays for Croatia, and there was you know maybe a little bit more. Um, it was all friendly and amicable, but there was you know a certain different you know heat to the match and the crowd and a lot of Bosnians in. Uh, Melbourne, uh, than there would have been if it was playing against you know some other non-neighbor country. But for the most part, I think people are eager to keep peace in tennis, and tennis is a has been able to stay a non-political arena for the most part, and that's why people take such umbrage often at things like the Shahar Pair situation and mm. things like Jaziri and whatever else it might be. I think tennis people, the ideal of tennis being uh, of sport being beyond borders, I think tennis is for the most part very very good at. I mean, you see that personified and actualized very visibly in the doubles with cooperation between countries fluidly and how a lot of players have to really adjust when it comes time to Olympics. They have to find someone from their own country, which can often be not what their original intention was at all, depending on what the country is and not what their normal habits are. Um, It can be weird for them. Uh, But uh, yeah, it's uh, mostly for the most part, it's good. I mean, the the defecting, we've talked on the show before about... uh, the ITF changing its rules about changing countries, which I think Courtney and I are both on the same side of that. We think there should be more, less restriction on that because players like Aljaj Bedene is the most famous example, Slovenian, uh, so part of former Yugoslavia, although he was not playing, I don't think, during any time before Slovenian independence. Uh, he, you know, can't switch his country if he wants to switch to representing Britain. He can't switch fully in terms of Davis Cup Olympic preparation because he had previously played at a young age for and some dead rubbers for Slovenia. So those sort of things, those are remaining hurdles that have changed. And there may be not that obviously when Martina defected much more dramatically and, and Lendl later in his career, they were able to get full U.S. participation, but it was at a much, you know, more, you know, sneaking out of a car, in a car or whatever, you know, fly yeah. by night sort of arrangement. Betonet has freedom of movement. And most players, unless there's like, I don't know, like a North Korean player we haven't met yet. Um, most players are not in that situation, but, uh, yeah, it's, uh, there's still a couple, couple things that could be smoothed out, but for the most part, I think tennis is, uh, it's a ramble here, but tennis is pretty good at breaking down barriers and making us all come together and unite as one. Kumbaya. Kumbaya. 
we are it's a small world nonsense there. I mean it's it's that weird um you know uh the two sides of the coin for tennis which is that because it's such a small community and um you know a traveling circus as it were it really breaks down the borders you know, between players, like everybody's just like, you're just this person. Like, I don't, it's just like a high school. Like, you know what I mean? Like we all live in the same neighborhood sort of situation. So th- there isn't too much of that sort of um, animosity. The, the And then the flip side of that is that it, it, it it's almost like a, almost too idealized of a world, you know, where a lot of players maybe aren't familiar with, you know, the geopolitical situation and things like that. So they, they don't bring that stuff to the table, which is great, which is why, you know, it's, it's on the whole a very peaceful world. Uh, yeah. But at the same time, like, you, you kind of wonder sometimes, like, do you know what's going on here? Or, like, do we you talk, care? You know, we, we talked it's about that whole politics situation. Politics yeah. on tour, yeah, before yeah. the election, we talked about that. We had a segment on this. And just, yeah, if players aren't, you know, if there's a player from, uh, well, what's a good example of this? Let's say there's a player from uh, Ukraine, for example, as a country. We just have players right now. People, you know, I don't think that, you know, you know, Joe American or Joe Canadian or even, you know, hell, Joe French guy is going to be like, hi, uh, you know, Dolgopolov. How is this, you know, increasing Russian incursion to your territory affecting your right. mindset right now and your travel plans? They're just going to be more like, hey, bro, what's up? And, like, that'll be, like, a more superficial level of, like, everything's cool and everything's friendly. And not that that's bad or non-functional because it's very functional, very pragmatic. But it's not always, like, this, like, this sort of peace and under- this really great connection, this profound, deep communication doesn't always happen. And and it is good. I mean, the, the sort of – I remember um, – John Wertheim writes about this a lot in his mailbag and makes references to how global tennis is. We'll talk about, you know, marveling, like the big one people like talking about because it's a hyphen that you don't get to make very often. It's with Osaka Mm. saying there's like a Haitian-Japanese player, which is, you know, a rare combination in the world. And isn't that a great sign that tennis is like this, you know, uh, you know, melting pot or she's, I guess, her person is, or, you know, whatever, you know, it's this sort of everyone's represented and it's this great, you know, everyone coming together and playing a common language. And you have Zvera, who's like a German-Russian, and, you know, Lepchenko, who's an Uzbek-American, and whatever other, you know, people moving around and it's support for everybody around the world. And there's, you know, people from all continents. And well, the diverse like nature of the Americans, yeah. right? African-Americans, sure. Asian-Americans, you know, white Americans, like whatever. Like it, yeah. there's an incredible amount of diversity. Oh yeah, no. So it's so all that stuff. Tennis has going for it, um, and I think the tensions. I guess to get back to the previous, the real question, tensions. I don't think are there, but uh, there might people might not always be engaging on them as fully as they could be, or you know, right? I, exactly. Like I'm not always. That's kind of my point. Is like I'm not always convinced that the tensions don't exist because people are are have risen above it. Yeah. Sometimes those tensions don't exist because they just don't even engage with what for the engage with the 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 reason for the tension yeah which is fine it's not a judgment call away it's just like explanation as to why it's a shiny happy people <laughs> holding hands kind of place on uh, the tennis tour it's a good outro thought that Aww, song. yeah um okay one we have one last question to get to which are moting through all these in this long episode i feel like but 
hopefully substantial and satisfying for you guys. This is a non-tennis question mostly. This is from Janice Derringer who asks, uh, I am starting a blog, not in tennis, but in finance. And so this goes, it's not gonna be a tennis question at all, but we'll, it's stuff we talk about and it'll be hopefully useful to other people as well. As if uh, we only talk about tennis. Right, and we're happy to take <laughs> tangent questions. We said that before. If anyone yeah. who doesn't have a question, who has a question remaining rather wants to do it on something vaguely tennis or not really, go for it. We'll be fine with that. Um, she says, I'm very familiar with all the plagiarism and publishing rules around the written word, but since this is a blog format, I would love to hear from you a quick primer. I always pronounce that word primer used to, but I think primer is what they do now. I think it's technically primer, but I grew up pronouncing it primer. Me too. But it is primer. It's like the whole patent versus patent. I've Um, never heard it. I now pronounce it. Wait. You never heard it pronounced patent? Patently obvious? Oh, and patently is different. Um, I thought you meant. But the root is patent. I say patent for sure. It, it all started in law school because obviously patent has a very legal specific a specific definition within the legal realm. So like we kind of started saying patent because that would very specifically differentiate. Like we're not talking about patents. Mm, I don't we, think I like that one, but okay. I like I like patent. Patent <laughs> okay. patent's one of my pets. But go ahead. Um, and uh, ask for a quick primer primer on the legal use of images. Uh, Photos, clip art, gifts, etc. How do I know if something is in the public domain and usable? And what can be used with credit? And what should be avoided? Also, I would love to know your favorite blog platform. Thank you for your help. Uh, counting down to January, as we are all. Uh, so, Corey, I guess you're, you're you've more recently proprietized the blogger. <laughs> your own blog. I had I did this myself for a while, but you're a little well, kind of lived at the same time. But we're decently anyway. Start talking. <laughs> what, is, what, is, what is prime away on this primer? Yeah. Thanks for the intro, Ben. Um, yeah. So in terms of my favorite, I have not been on a blogging platform for a while. I miss two... your bright yellow blog, by the way. Yeah, Squarespace, which I like. Yeah. So um, I know. And I I'm going to bring it back in January um, because I just want to. And I haven't, I've just try, been trying to decide like what I want to do with it. And I think that right now I'm kind of thinking like, I don't know, I was going back and forth between like making it like a TV show, movie type blog thing or making it a travel blog. But anyways, I'll figure that out. But that's neither here nor there. Um, the three blogging platforms that I'm familiar with are Blogspot and WordPress and Squarespace. WordPress is where I, I basically migrated my old blog, 40 Deuce, and I am very familiar with it and I like it enough. I mean, it was perfectly fine for the purposes that I used it for. Squarespace is probably where I would go nowadays in terms of a, a, a blogging platform because it's pretty dynamic and you can do images, you can embed video, you can do a lot of different things. The, it's stylized really, really well. Um, I just I, I think that Squarepa- Squarespace just looks more professional than a WordPress blog. Um, so that's what my recommendation would be there. In terms of images, if it is something that can just be like you Googled and you looked on Google images and you found an image, I think that the general approach should always be that it is copyright protected. Yes. Um, most often, more often than not, the only images that you will get, and this includes GIFs, um, video, etc., that you will get that are not copyrighted are going to be via clip art or some sort of stock photo 
program where you've effectively bought the rights or the rights have been given to you for free. A few of those stock photo programs, um, I mean, the one that I'm relatively familiar with is Adobe. Adobe has a stock photo um, kind of program where they give you like 10 images a month for free and you can use those. Um, so that's a way to go. But otherwise, I mean, you should pretty much assume that everything that is visual on the internet is copyrighted. Yeah, that's that's a definitely a good default. There are a couple other ways to do it, though. I mean, well, there are a couple other sources. Yeah. And I have, getting... I have workarounds that I'll get into, but go ahead. Right. Well, I was just going to – I might be cutting you off here, so, no, so no. apologies. No, go but for it. I know, I know one of the things that I think – I know in terms of tennis blogs, like Tennis Island – relies on is the Getty embeddable stuff, which yes. is now a big feature, which they rolled out in the last couple of years. And it's been very useful, very clear for these sort of things. Like basically Getty will give you access to a big set of their photos. I don't know if all, but definitely a lot of their photos and it has a sort of embeddable photo function. And just the deal is like, there's a, a link and sort of a watermark on them or whatever um, that makes it, you know, Getty branded in a way that doesn't, you know, you know, more obvious than it might be if you just copy. Yeah, and you lose it and you lose it. some customizable features, like you can't yeah. really crop the photo, you know, to what right. you specifically need it to be. But it's it is really helpful, and so yeah, the yeah. Getty function is is awesome and, for that sort of stuff. And the other one I was going to say is again, I found this during Racket Rally. If you go on Flickr, mm -hmm. there is a a search setting. That gets people who've own people who've made or you know users who've made their photos available for public domain use or Creative Commons license or whatever right. it falls into, and you can search just for those. And for tennis, for big players, certainly you can get most players on there. Yeah. And you know it's it's obviously not, I always I didn't ever do this for record. I always ask people always, um, but you just theoretically can put their name if you want, or you don't even have to. That's what like Wiki, Wikipedia has common use photos in the Wikimedia era and so most wikipedia photos are should all be copyright cleared yeah um but yeah for the most part assume things are not are copyrighted. free of use yeah, yeah exactly assume, assume everything assume then, everything is is copyrighted and then you figure out how to how to handle that so one way is that you again you go through all of those different ways whether it be getty images or um you know clip art or stock photo um, functions. And there's a lot, if you Google like free images, you'll find some like websites that will offer you free copyright cleared images that you can use. But mm -hmm. if you, if you're kind of like a, like if I were to blog like these days, like if I were on Squarespace and I put a blog post up about Kubo and the two strings, which everybody knows that I love, and I wanted to embed a GIF of Kubo and the two strings. And I found that GIF, you know, on Giphy, or via a Google image search, and I wanted to embed it. I know that that GIF is copyright protected, and I know also that somebody else made it, right? So it's like two different levels. Like it's copyright protected because it's part of the movie, but then also somebody else made it, so it's not mine. Um, mm -hmm. Given today's internet rules, <laughs> I would still pretty much use it and make sure I attribute. So the key issue is attribution and link back. Always link back when you can over attribute. Um, and all of that is just the cool thing to do. That's just like the proper way to be an internet citizen yeah. is to do that always. And also it just offers you, you know, cover, you know, at the end of the day, like people get really mad when their things are being used, not because they're being used, but because they haven't been attributed. So just always attribute. So I would embed, you know, a Kubo and the two strings GIF. And then I would say like via Giphy or link back to the Tumblr page upon which I found it. Right. You know, where you you throw the, the traffic back to 
the originating account. Now, sometimes, especially like, you know, with Giphy or even on Tumblr and things like that, you find this GIF, you have no idea who created it. You just oh, know on, that you just yeah. know that you found it on this specific site. On you Tumblr, know, it can be like wormholes of like reblogs exactly. and reblogs and reblogs. Yeah. Link link to I mean obviously the the best you know practice is to find that originating source. I think that would be the you know the standard that a New York Times would use or whatever. Not that they embed gifts, but you know like that would be the standard that I would use at the WTA if I was if I was trying to embed a GIF, is to find the originating source. But for a personal blog. Or even you know a, a professional blog, but but you know something on that platform, I wouldn't worry too much about it. But I would just make sure to, to at least link somewhere to where that so where you found it. And I think that should be enough cover. And if somebody's mad about it, they write you and you take it down. It's no big deal. No. You're not gonna like lose your job for it. You could lose your, you could get in trouble if you don't attribute, but you're not gonna get in trouble if you attribute and the person doesn't want you to use it, and yeah. then you take Pre- it down. Yeah, and just be responsive to that and be ready to do that and five substitutes and. It should be, you know, relatively straightforward. And there are things, if there's a specific thing, you can also proactively ask for permission, like for finance, mm-hmm. if this is a topic of this, if someone made a very cool graph of some sort of thing, of some trend or something, and you want to write an article jumping off of, or post jumping off of their thing, you could be like, hey, you could, they'll probably have most websites for people, or, you know, have some sort of contact info. You can find the author on their site directly or on Twitter or what have you, and just shoot them a note. Or, you know, it's it's not most people in that situation are right. more or less easy to get in touch with. And if you can't find it and you're uncomfortable, find a workaround, you know, find a different picture you can use. It's maybe not perfect and not the one you were dreaming of, but it's still functional. And hopefully the, fo- the focus of your the meat of your blog is usually in the uh, text, which is original, right. not the picture. I mean, like, yeah. So, I mean, it, it can it can vary for sure. Gifts are interesting. In terms of transform how much copyright and transfer credit and whatnot to YouTube embeds are also theoretically iffy. I mean, and, and again, if it's pirated it, material, it gets right? Out. If if you know that, like for example, like if I'm sure I did this on daily forehand when I was blogging, um, or Espionation, if there were you know highlights from a match or something, which I'm guessing, you know, whatever YouTube tennis fan put it up there, I'm sure they didn't have permission, but it was on YouTube, and so like it wasn't like my I wasn't the one pirating it, but it was already out there. You know, there's gray areas and ways where you're not going to get personally in trouble that might not be fully, you know, dotting every I, crossing every T. But it's it's, it's messy. And you just, just try to be, basically, it should be, you should develop a sense of more or less right and wrong. Yeah. And, 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 and that I, sort of thing, get a good, and get a good instinct for what feels like crossing a line. Pretty yeah, my, my approach to kind of like you know, using content from the internet has always been kind of just the golden rule, like do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So like, I always kind of think of it as like, okay, if I wrote this article, or if I broke this story, or if I took this photo, or I posted this video, and somebody else were to use it, how would I want, and assuming that I want, I don't have a problem at a baseline of people using my work, how, what would piss me off? You know, and for me, the biggest thing is like if they used it and they tried to pawn it off as something they did. Yeah. And that's no. why attribution is the biggest thing. I'm certainly, we, I'm sure we both have this plenty um, of our own stuff where, you know, where you'll see right. a scoop that one of us had, you know, or a story or even just like a feature that you do. Like if I did like something on, I just did the story on Ducky Lee in Korea 
And then not surprisingly after that, because it was one of the more high, he'd been written about before, obviously, but it was one of the more high profile uh, and in-depth things on him that had been done. And so in the week after there was various coverage, you know, sort of echo coverage other places and not all of them mentioned the fact that there was like, they're getting most of their info from the New York Times. And that's that's where you get frustrated, right? Like I've seen that as well, where you're just like, you know, you see a big website you know, use and basically regurgitate your story. And you're like, come on, man. Remember that? Least... Remember that? Yeah, go ahead. Remember that was that weird Andy Murray story yeah. about like the, the maid on his hotel <laughs> room that maid, was like, yeah. like randomly like got written on some British, I want to say Telegraph. I'm not, maybe Daily, uh, Daily Telegraph, something. I'm not sure exactly what it was. Um, some website. It was a Scottish like their website. Wire. It was a local some... Scottish, like the, the Herald or something. Right. Like their wire first. had like a condensation of a, youtube interview that he'd done with the for iptl promotion like months earlier and it suddenly popped up as this completely unattributed like quote dump and it was like the weirdest quotes it was great content they found good stuff they just didn't attribute it at all and you're like where is this and what is it coming from and so just yeah. always attribute because if nothing else if the if the original source got it wrong it provides you cover like if i you know if i tweet and this is you know cynical but if i tweet something you know like so and so uh x reporter reports that you know, Murray has fired Jamie Delgado. Not that he has. But if I do that and attribute it and then it's wrong, I can be like, well, I was just saying that he said it. I didn't know. I don't know. Um, it's right. just, it's, it's, a, it's a smart, it's a just diligent thing to do. And that's just a good tip going forward with respect to fake news and things like that. If you read something that like seems like, huh, that's really interesting and whatever, I but I need to make sure that that is true. Always ask, like, says who? Where'd you get that? Um, it, just takes, it takes so much more work to be a consumer these days. And, exactly. and even you have to work. E- and even with social media, because like everyone with a Twitter account then becomes a producer very quickly on their own. And so few people, like if you see something bouncing around, uh, you know, a tweet from somebody, it's it can take a lot of steps to, or it can take a while to sort of, you know, get to the core of it and be like, is this a worth thing we're tweeting and, and twitter's not always built for <laughs> diligent fact checking you know and it's it's very it's you know retweeting or quote tweeting and being like wow it's you know takes five seconds and right sourcing out all the various macedonian teenagers behind this article or whatever can be much more arduous and opaque process so it's a jungle out there janice derringer but we think we hope you do well a tribute and that'll that'll clean up so much of it yeah all right. Those are all our questions. Cool. Good work, team. Uh, thank you very much, you guys, for listening to this episode of No Challenges Remaining. If you follow, follow along with you're not listening, you can do so by liking us on Facebook, facebook.com slash ncrpodcast. You can also like us on – or follow us on Twitter, at ncr underscore tennis. Uh, send us questions uh, for upcoming shows. We still have a couple – we still have quite a few people from, who have Kickstarter questions who haven't sent them in yet. Uh, I think we've done – all of them by now that we have so if you have one or more or less the ones that were straightforward questions and not sort of other requests that are not as easily doable uh anyhow we would like to get the rest of yours if you have them send us an email to no challenge demanding at gmail.com with a clearly marked subject line ideally saying kickstarter question something like that uh if you like the show uh subscribe to us on itunes and any other podcast app and leave us reviews there the executive producers of No Challenges Remaining are Pancha Resendez of TennisBalls.com and Tal Woolley. 
Courtney, you want to rant about stuff? I'm just going to give a quick shout out and rave for the um, game that was created for the iPad by the International Fencing Federation, FIE, that is a fencing game. And it's called FIE Swordplay. And I never would have found this except that I was reading like a bunch of like best of games things for iPad and it came up on one of the best of lists of this year. And it's phenomenal. And the reason why it's phenomenal, it doesn't reinvent the wheel. Basically, you just fence and you set fence on the circuit and you win like points and you buy new gear and you work your way up and whatever. Hold That's on. All... Pause. How do you fence on an iPad? Break that down okay. for me. So it's 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 not unlike you would do like for on any sort of touch screen. So on, on the left hand side, there's two buttons, one to move your player to the left, one to move it to the right, right? Because you move on a a plane, right? Right. Go forwards the, or backwards, essentially. Forwards yeah. and backwards. And on the other side, you have one button, which is to parry, uh, to block a, a, a thing. And then you usually have two attack buttons. And depending on what your level is and what attacks you've, like, won or been awarded or bought. So one would be, like, a lunge attack. And I think mm-hmm. when you start, one's a lunge. Um, and one is, like, a like a double lunge thing. Um but anyways, the reason why I would say, and you just play it like that. So it's it's, it's just touchscreen, moving your player back and forth, et cetera, et cetera. But the reason why I wanted to give this app a shout out, and I think that it's something that would be really helpful for any sport that is incredibly um, unique with respect to terminology and gameplay and rules, is that I've learned a ton about fencing playing this game in terms of like what certain moves are called. Um, what certain rules are all, are in the in in the sport? What different versions of like bouts there can be? There's speed bouts where there are no rounds. You just like the first player to three and you fence nonstop, which is like pretty fun, like an actual sword fight. Um, you know things like that. There are timed battles and things like that, which are cool. And it's like no, it's no. There's no frills to it. It's just very basic. And then every few rounds you meet with your coach, uh, and then he teaches you like a new move. And oh, that's cool. Um, and then you play like, you know, uh, you fence against another player and the coach gives you like a breakdown, like he's really aggressive. So it's really important for you to parry and then quickly attack, um, with a lunge and it's like, okay. And I don't know. So learning technique and tactics, all this, I think it's just a really smart way. Like I would totally play a similar game like this for like curling, which is a sport Mm. that like I enjoy, but I don't really understand the, 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 the nuts and bolts of it. I, I just it like sounds watching perfect it for, for Olympic sports. Exactly. Arch, you know, archery, yeah. um, dressage, you know, just oh. like things like that. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know what this move is called, but if I played a game and you rewarded me for doing this move, like that's kind of cool. So yeah. So I, I just want to give a shout out for it. F I E sword play. I think it's, it's really well done. No, that's very true. I mean, like most of all of what I know about cricket is from this very basic web game called slime cricket you ever played slime sports games i did not okay so there were these genre of games i think the most common most original one was volleyball and there were these like half dome half circle shaped mounds <laughs> that would like basically like bounce the ball off of them across a little line that was the net and anyway they had varieties that popped up later including soccer and anyway the, the best one by far was the cricket one which is weird because uh, people like in my high school and like the school library would play like intense games of slime cricket against each other in america and so i know what like a six is and basic things like that and you know other 
I think that's other great. Other things. Yeah, I mean, so it's good. I, I it, it enjoy just, it works. Like it's those a really types good way to learn a sport. Is what I'm, is what I'm agreeing I with mean, you even on. outside of sports, like another game that came up to, came to mind of where I was like, oh my God, that gave me so much insight into this very specific world. Um, is this PC game called Prison Architect, which maybe I've talked about on the show before. I'm not entirely sure, but it's phenomenal. Basically, you play the warden of a prison and you have to like build the prison and different inmates of different security levels. You have to keep like the max prisoners separate from the solitary prisoners. You have to schedule their days so that like, you know, you don't want like the max security prisoners like walking to dinner as the minimum security prisoners are leaving dinner or else you have to build like a different way because if you do that like the max security prisoners will attack the minimum security prisoners and there's bloodshed but anyways in the course of playing that game i learned a lot about kind of like prison management that i had never really thought of before because it's like really well and smartly done so like games like that i think are really really great and i just think that like the fencing game is it's been it's been cool to play well, if this tennis thing doesn't work out for you, Courtney, to win, you have a future in corrections, I'm sure. <laughs> Not really, because my sister used to make fun of me because Prison Architect, like, runs real time. So if you don't hit pause, if, if you forget to hit pause, you'd get, I'd get back to my desk, I'd go eat dinner, and then I'd come back, and, like, everyone would be dead. <laughs> they were, like, massive riots. <laughs> I mean, that can happen in tennis, too. It's true. Uh, so, yeah, so that's pretty, that's all sounds, those are useful recommendations. Mine is sort of just a... Uh, a small thing on uh, this woman, Cindy Stowell, who is her episodes have been airing the last few days on Jeopardy. And she Aww, was it's a great uh, story. Yeah. So she was this woman who's um, had applied to be on Jeopardy. Uh, and earlier this year, I'm not exactly sure what the timeline of when she taped is, but anyway, short version of it is she applied, told the producer she had been given, you know, was terminally ill at stage four cancer, I believe, and didn't have much time left and wanted to know if she'd be able to do her audition and get on the show, you know, before it was too late. Uh, and the producers, like, accommodated her and still made her audition and, you know, come to wherever the regional audition was, I think, in Oklahoma for her or Texas. And she went, she passed, they got on the show three weeks later, which is a very fast turnaround for Jeopardy. Uh, when I was on, it took, uh, mine was pretty fast too but it was seven months so it's a much fa- three month, three weeks it's like very very fast by their standards um she got on and she's done really well and it's just and it's not a surprise i looked her up on this other trivia site that i'm on and she's like a top level person and had, had great stats and but after it she uh she passed away pretty before the episodes aired uh, a couple weeks ago so it's uh pretty it's it's strange and different to see someone who's competing on a plausibly live it's people know it's not live but you know a new show is still coming out who you know has already passed away and she would have qualified this is a spoiler but whatever she would have qualified for the tournament of champions and things like that because she's been doing that well um so it's just a sort of it's a sort of strangely like life-affirming thing to have happen and it's definitely (laughs) turned my uh jeopardy frown upside down after going on and losing and now have like it's renewed my positive feelings when i hear that word off the top of my head uh, so it's just a, and that's a make puts all of my relative jeopardy agony in ridiculous context of being like you jackass things were so much things are not bad in your life at all and it's a very nice thing and she's done really well so and it's been interesting because none of the people who are on the show with her another other contestants rather were told about any of this so they're all mm. just sort of which is like good they weren't told yeah, to be very sure. awkward to be competing <laughs> as someone who you had heard that about it would feel pretty unfair 
Um, but she's gone on there and done well, and it's been a, a cool thing to watch. And definitely one of like the weird, uh, weird, not positive, but like, uh, I don't know, it's, it's hard to call it feel, it's not hard to find the right word for it, but I, um, uh, yeah, uh, uh, somehow reassuring or like a positive story in 2016, which has been in desperate, desperate need of such things and continues to be every day. Continues, so, absolutely. So, uh, congratulations to Cindy Stowell. Rest in peace and hopefully, uh, can just make other people appreciate what they have. So, a bit of a downer, but we'll play shiny, happy people anyway, because that's what we promised to do earlier. <laughs> uh, and with that, we will. Do a Remember When show before this year is over, for sure. And that will put the rest of this 2016 in context. It wasn't all bad, right? Yeah, right? no, it wasn't It wasn't all bad. Uh, my second niece was born in 2016, which mm-hmm. is the only reason why I will not say 2016 was the absolute worst, because that's not true. Um, and there were little bright moments here and there, but yeah, we are 11 days away. We need this year to end. And just hope that 2017, I mean, 2017 could be worse. We don't know. It could be worse, but at least let's just close the book on this one and let's start anew. I really liked your Sigourney Weaver thing. Oh, so good, right? Ripley? Yeah. 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 That let's, you makes know, sense. Let's take a deep breath. Let us steal ourselves for the 2017 year and tennis season, which, uh, you know, hopefully will be better than this one. And with that, we'll shine on. Happy people. <laughs> Yay. Yay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.